Hey guys, it's Jessica. And this is Kendra. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. It's almost fall. I mean, it's starting to feel like it. Yes. We had that little, I don't know, it's like it decided to be summer for a couple of weeks here. Like roasting. Right. And now it's like gloomy and it rained all day yesterday and it's like 70 outside. And I told Jessica yesterday, I'm ready to put on my sweater and start drinking everything pumpkin spice. And I was like, oh, you're a pumpkin spice girl, huh? I said, yep, (laughs) I'm I'm the basic bee that (laughs) loves pumpkin spice. I I buy the creamer at like Target, the Starbucks pumpkin spice is out. And that's what I put in my coffee this morning. And Mm. so, yes, I was telling her I've never tried it. And I think it's because I already know myself. Like I like pumpkin pie. I do, but it's not like, oh my God, have pumpkin to have pie. it. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not one of those people. If it has to be a pie, I'm more of like a cherry pie or an apple pie. And then I also really don't care for the smell like in the candles. So I'm like probably not going to not like your the thing. drinks. I yeah. like it without any whipped cream. Like if I go to Starbucks and get pumpkin spice, it's way too sweet when they put the whipped cream and all that mm. on it. I just like the, you know, I guess it's the fall spices, like the cinnamon, the nutmeg, the clove. No. Okay. That's really all it is when yeah. I say pumpkin spice. And I've always liked that kind of flavor in my coffee anyways. Maybe I'll give it a try. I'll, I don't I'll bring know. you on next time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you we'll can see. do that. We'll do a test. <laughs> we will find out. And Not- if you don't like it, I'll drink it. <laughs> you'll have two. <laughs> Probably. And then you'll be a different kind of wired on our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do love pumpkin ravioli. Yeah, that, that's a good one like too. Butternut squash. Like I love all raviolis. I'm obsessed with raviolis. Yeah. And that's like a Mushroom. fall thing too yeah. is to start having the pumpkin and the butternut squash. I know Trader Joe's always has those available around Yeah, we were talking about Trader Joe's. You can't even park there. Oh God, no. In Boulder, <laughs> like Trader Joe's is like getting a parking spot there is... I don't know, winning the lottery. So usually you have to park like in the next parking lot yeah. over okay. and like walk a long way. Yeah. So yeah, it's a whole ordeal. I tried. I was like driving around and I just eventually gave up. I'm like, okay, no Trader Joe's for me <laughs> because our New Mexico listeners will know like we have them down there. And so I used to go a lot growing up and now here they're only in like specific places. Yeah, in we don't Colorado. have a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're always in the places that are super crowded already. Yeah. It's the places that are like hip to be, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to be very specific about going to Trader Joe's in case anyone is listening that doesn't know what Trader Joe's <laughs> is. <laughs> it's like a hip Whole Foods. Yeah. It's a fancy grocery store. They have yeah. a great frozen food section. You can get some things from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I think they're actually a German owned company. Okay. They own Aldi and which Aldi's a whole nother thing and right. Trader Joe's. Okay. And Trader Joe's has a lot of like their own stuff that's specific to them food wise and yes, yeah. wines and everything, everything. Yeah. You'll spend a lot of money, but then you'll still have to go grocery shopping. Yeah. That's, that's what where the you joke go. Is. <laughs> that's where you go just for feeling special. Yeah. I, I buy a lot of frozen things there for like nights I don't want to cook mm. and they have like good options where it's frozen, but it's still like healthier, yeah. like real food right. instead of processed. There's another place here that's kind of similar and that's natural grocers oh my god and you'll, you'll drop a fortune there I too. know I spent way too much the other day but I found something that I love and it's those dried strawberries but they're like still the squishy dried? oh okay so they're not it's not the crunchy kind they're still squishy and they're like freaking candy to me and oh. no one sells them anywhere and I haven't had them in years to be honest and I went in there and I saw them and they were like four dollars for this bag and I was like oh <gasps> My life has changed. <laughs> That's your candy? No, I, yeah, I'm not a big candy person, but they're like gummies. They're so good. Mm-hmm. So good. Well, speaking of like 
treats and everything, I'm going to be spending all day tomorrow baking and, well, and kind of getting into the fall spirit, I guess. Uh, Drew <laughs> brought home these zucchinis from one of his workers. Oh. And they're like, huge. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Insanely huge. From and, his garden or something. Yeah. And last time I had that, I just made a lot of like zucchini bread muffins, like several mm. different kinds. So I'm going to do that. And then my child's school is having a bake sale on Monday. Oh my gosh. And I, so I'm going to make something. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be so fun to do. Like I remember doing that with my mom, the bake sales at school. Yes. I don't know if my daughter's school would do that. Everybody's allergic to everything. Now. I know. Well, I know. And I'm in Boulder, but this is like a small school. There's oh, only okay. 300 kids there. And so I think they're a little bit more like Lacks traditional in a okay. way. Yeah. Because they said we can make it ourselves because oh. I feel like some schools, they won't let you make things anymore. They only want it to be store bought. Mm. But yeah, they said we can bake treats or nice. make it. So I think we're, I don't know exactly what we're going to make yet. Probably some cupcakes or something. Probably. And, yeah, yeah. Cupcakes. Cupcakes are always the way to go. I remember getting zucchini from my daughter's grandmother, not my mother, but her grandmother because she grows zucchini and she gave me one of those really huge ones. And I was like, what am I going to do this? So I made zucchini lasagna. It was oh, really, yeah. really good. Always in for a truly kind of vegetarian option on my yes. part. Yeah. Did I send you that cow video? I don't think so. Oh, now you have to watch it. Unless you did and I haven't checked it yet. I don't know. Day. It was just a baby cow that was born and the mom was bringing the owner to her because it happened overnight and she's like bringing her to her baby and Aww. and the mother was beautiful and I was sitting there and I'm like, God damn it, fuck meat. I can't eat. I know. <laughs> I told you I watched that corporate farming. I can't remember what it was called documentary and it made me cry and I tried vegan for like I don't know I probably only made three weeks oh well I did it for a very long time but here living in my house I rarely eat meat like I don't buy meat so well, I mean yeah. it's good here like but it's going out or if we need a quick meal or something and my daughter wants something that's where like I'll cave and get something because I'm hungry too and there's not a whole lot out there option no. you know options for us and it just made me sad I know every time I animals. see I see a lot of that or even how like smart pigs are mm-hmm. and they even talk about chickens and how like oh yeah chickens they attach to each other I mean they're yeah. all sentient beings yep. and it is when you like really stop and think about it it's hard to want to continue to eat meat or even drink milk because if you see how the dairy cows yeah. are treated, like yeah, I know I've seen horrible things. But I freaking love cheese, so it's really, really that is hard. a very difficult thing. Have you tried vegan cheese? Oh yeah, because I was oh yeah, I didn't know dairy for like five years because of my tummy. Oh, <laughs> hurt. And then my boyfriend is uh, he can't eat dairy. Oh yeah, so. that's right. I've yeah. done it all with the non-dairy, but. You're now, like, but it's so much better. <laughs> now cheese is back in my milk. life and I can't imagine giving it up again. But I could give up meat, I think, easily if I didn't live with boys. Oh, yeah. Because they need that like extra protein. They're like, it's not a meal without meat no. kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I lived just, with that too. I was just telling you right before we started recording that, you know, I've gained some weight since I moved in with Drew. And I think it's because I don't know if you've watched the TikToks. There's like this whole uh, trend right now with girl dinner. Oh, there's like a little song and it's like girl dinner. Oh, and she's like crackers yes. and cheese or something. And I was like, that's how I eat. <laughs> that's how I used to eat. Yeah. And now I moved in with Drew and he has his two boys and then I have to cook dinner every night and then I eat Ugh. dinner every night. Yeah. So I'm eating more calories than I ever did before yeah. because I would eat a bowl of cereal or some popcorn or crackers and cheese yeah. and be good. Yeah. Now I'm eating meat 
and potatoes um, yeah. on the side. And so, yeah, it's not good for the waistline either. <laughs> I used to make meals all the time, too, but I would always make it where, like, my portion was the child's portion mm. because I know I can't eat that much. Yeah. But I'm so happy to not be cooking dinners anymore. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> Everybody who comes and to visit you is like, I want an apartment of my own with nobody to cook for. <laughs> I know. No, it's been great because then I get to have things that I really want. If I do yes. cook, then I'm very specific about it. And it's something I really want to eat. Otherwise, that is what I'm doing. I'm snacking. Right. Like I have fruit. I have cheese. I have crackers, balsamic. Like yeah. I just get to have a smorgasbord whenever I want. Or I used to just make like a pot of soup and I would eat that for days, like a kind of soup that I like. What I am trying to figure out how to get down to, is it just being me that I'm cooking for? Because for years, I wouldn't even cook for me, to be honest. I would just cook so that there was food and then I wouldn't eat any of it. And it was always for what they like. Yeah. And now it's me. And so I'm like, well, if I cook it, I need to make sure I'm only cooking enough that there's like one leftover. Otherwise, right. I'm going to waste gonna it. Go bad. And I don't eat that much. So really, I'm cooking like half of something yeah. <laughs> to be my two meals and... I'm figuring it out. Only a couple of things have gone bad in my fridge so far. I'm trying not to overload. And yes. now I'm really looking at expiration dates on things because it's just me. You know it's going to sit there. Yeah. I know I'm a big proponent of not wasting food in our household. So Me too. I always, even if it's like five different things in there, then that, that's, that's our what, dinner. That's our dinner. <laughs> and it'll all go on one plate. Yep. We did that earlier this week. I was like, I'm not cooking a new meal. We have too many leftovers. Yep. If you guys don't want this, then you can make a sandwich. But sometimes those are the best meals, to be honest, because then you're getting like something from each meal. And it's not just like one type of thing. Right. Like, Ooh, I'm eating this dinner right now. And now I'm eating this dinner. And it's just it's good. It's like, like visiting a buffet in Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> which we did not do. Dang no. it. I really there's not wanted to. There's not as many buffets as there used to be. I mean, I wanted to go just for the crab legs because I am a crabby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now we just have to go to Blackhawk. I think they have one of those up there. We will not gamble. We will just eat, eat crab. <laughs> Speaking of which, did you see I sent you the video and I think I sent it to Elizabeth too that Vegas is flooding now. So we were there when it was 111 degrees and the ceiling from the Paris fell down. Oh, really? Like people were walking through the casino and all the beautiful cloud ceiling just fell down. Because there's so much water and I guess it's getting heavy and like the roofs are starting to like oh, cave no. in in some of these casinos. Did we curse it by what we said? I don't know. But I sent it to you and Elizabeth <laughs> and said, I guess it could have been worse than no blankets. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that. I saw something recently too about it flooding in the streets and then someone yeah. was like, that was from last year. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the people who are actually lived in Vegas were like, oh, that video is from last year. That didn't happen right now. Well, the one from Paris, I saw like three or four different videos. So I think no. it just happened. Maybe it could be collapsing because they haven't been taking care of it. <laughs> Quite possibly. Or we cursed it. <laughs> Got to be one careful what you say. Well, I'm kind of upset because my daughter, bless her little heart, cannot remember anything. So her first week back to school, she forgot her brand new water bottle on the first day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like just bought that and it was like $30 right so then I'm like now I have to use a different water bottle sent her to school with that and she did bring back both water bottles but then she ended up forgetting her jacket <laughs> and I'm like great make sure you get that and so the next day she comes back with a jacket and I'm pulling it out of her bag 
not her jacket. Oh, no. Because <laughs> she had a jean jacket. It's like it's someone else's jean jacket and someone that's much bigger than her. So oh, no. like, it, and it zips and hers didn't. And, <laughs> but then as I'm pulling the jacket out, I'm like, where's your water bottle and lunchbox? Oh, no. She left that. <laughs> and so she left that. So I had to send her to school with yet another water bottle. <laughs> and she had to come back with two water bottles and her lunchbox. And then she left her watch at school, which is my oh. GPS and how she talks to other family members and stuff. And we have not found the watch. Oh, no. And I am livid about That's it. That's money. Yes. Yeah. I watched it die over the weekend. Oh, no. Because I'm really mad. Like, I can't turn it on remotely. You can turn it off remotely, but you can't turn it on remotely. It died at like 1030 Sunday night. I was just wanting it to get to Monday morning so, so you I could find go, it. go get it. And no one can find it. Oh, no. And she swears that she took it off for a water project in her class and put it in her cubby but it's not there but it's not there and it's no one out on cares the playground. and I'm just like it better show up like I'm still paying on this thing too yeah so it's been a week without mm. it and I need to find it <laughs> I don't I, know what to do <laughs> yeah I don't know how to can't go buy another one no so uh. children their brains scattered. Yes. I'm thinking of putting like a one of those luggage tags Air on tags. her backpack. Mm-hmm. Well, that, yes, that too. But another one where it's like a see-through luggage, like actual tag. Uh-huh. And there's a little list for her. Do you have your water <laughs> bottle? <laughs> Do you have your lunchbox? Because we're getting into winter. And another thing she is. Gloves. <laughs> gloves and hats. Yes. I have to have like 20 pairs. At some point in the winter, I always end up having absolutely nothing. Because I don't notice that she doesn't have her gloves until the morning. And that's the last set of gloves that I had for her because all of them are missing at school. I have bought so so many gloves over the years with my two kids. I think it's just, yeah. I already just bought two snow gloves and two of the regular ones for her. And I'm like, I got to start stocking up right now. Yep. Go buy them. The weather's changing. We should buy them all at the end of the season when they're all on sale. I know. Like 80% off. Well, when they get to be like junior high and high school, they won't wear gloves. They'll like sit there and freeze whether they wear gloves. So (laughs) you don't have to worry about that once they get older. (laughs) Because God forbid they act like they're cold. Yeah. But I'm thankful that the weather is changing a little bit. But this year went by so fast. We always say that. And this week. I blinked. You were here. Yeah. I didn't feel ago. like we had a break. No. I felt like we were just sitting here. <laughs> yes. Yesterday. <laughs> and here we are again. <laughs> well, what are we talking about today? Oh, boy. This one has been a long time coming. Oh, yeah. I think you and I have both had one or two of these on our list up to this point. We kept pushing them back and pushing them back. Today, I'm talking about a cult. Yes. Yay. Getting to the cult. We're finally culting it. Yes. Up. I don't know why we kept pushing it back. I think it's because I realized that there's probably a lot of information and it just time wise, I knew I wasn't going to have it and I didn't want to get too deep and then do it badly. (laughs) I do think that's like whenever you're talking about a cult, usually it stretches over years and years and years and there's so many people involved. So it is a more time consuming research. So that makes sense. We haven't had the time. Yeah. And it was. Yes. It was. So I am talking about a cult called The Family. Well, it sounds nice. From Australia. Okay. They also went by or were known by a couple of other names. The Great White Brotherhood. Oh, that sounds sounds not so nice. (laughs) That sounds very racist. The Santa Canitan Park Association. I've heard different (laughs) ways of how to say that word, by the way. Okay. That's a horrible name for a cult. So I see why they don't want to go by that. Sounds like some kind of woods get together. Yeah, I just see a bunch of dudes in like park ranger outfits. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't go by this, but someone else kind of tagged it. And you'll see why. The Mrs. X yoga cult. Oh, so there's yoga involved. There okay. is yoga involved. 
They operated in secrecy for almost two decades. Oh, wow. Other than yoga, it was a cult that was focused on children. Oh, aren't they always? The end times. That too. (laughs) A dash of aliens. Oh, that's new. And Jesus reincarnated. Oh, well, that's always part of it too, Jesus. With the threat of mental institutions and drugs. Whoa. Lots of money. And it all started with one woman. A woman? Yeah. Oh, damn. Anne Hamilton Byrne. It never starts with a woman. I came across some other cults by women. I'm like, they're rare, but they're there. Are they super crazier than the male cults? They can't be. For some reason, when I think of any cult of like a woman, I just start thinking of like Cleopatra. (laughs) Like (laughs) stuff like that. Well, it makes sense. Yoga, women. Yeah. The main accusation against this cult is the imprisonment and brainwashing of children in the 70s and 80s, among some other messed up things. But let's talk about Anne. Anne was actually born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards. It's a very distinguished a, name. It was pretty. I was mm-hmm. like, that flows like really Evelyn. well, too. But she was not a great person. <laughs> she was very, very selfish in her later years. Mm. But a bit more about her before we get to that, because we all start somewhere. And she didn't have an easy life growing up. Okay. She was born December 30th, 1921 in Sale, Victoria, in Australia, which was a small farming town at the time with one small main street. And she was the oldest of seven children. That's a lot. Yeah. Her mother, Florence Hoyle, was from South London, but ended up in Gippsland, Victoria. Her father, Ralph Edwards, was from Melbourne. He was in World War II, and he was discharged for poor health. Florence was his second wife. Okay. The children did grow up in poverty, and their parents were regularly absent. Mm. They spent time at the old Melbourne orphanage at least two different times. Her mother was undiagnosed at the time with a mental illness, and she wasn't around much. Being the oldest, she probably had to take care of her younger siblings. Yeah, she never had a real. She didn't have a real childhood. Her father, in return, just disappeared for long periods of time. At one point, running from an unpaid ward veteran's debt, he did end up completely abandoning the family and was living on Victoria's western coast, where he claimed to others that he had no children. Wow. And he died in 1966. Sounds like an asshole. Florence did not have an easy life. And when Evelyn, or Anne, was of age, Florence was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Oh, no. She spent 27 years in mental hospitals. She was known in sale for being the woman who set fire to her own hair in the middle of the street. Whoa, that's not something you want to be known for. No. (laughs) She sadly eventually died in a mental hospital in 1971. In life, Florence claimed to be a medium who could speak to the dead. Hmm. So I don't know. Maybe she could. Maybe she could. And maybe she wasn't crazy. crazy. Yeah. But maybe, yeah, maybe it did drive her crazy. And that's why she's like, get out of my head or something like that and set her hair on fire. You have dead spirits talking to you all day long. You're like, shut up. That's very true. And I wouldn't blame her for going crazy either because he left her with seven children. Oh, God, I would I'd go crazy with <laughs> one child. She was already <laughs> mentally unstable in some way. Yeah, seven, no way. Yeah. Anne herself did not see her mother as mentally ill. She saw her as gifted. She said that her mother would write out the dead people's stories after channeling their spirits. Well, that's interesting. Yep. And I've seen people do that. I've watched some videos where people seem to be channeling people and... Some of them have been very convincing. Yeah. But there are actors in the world. So but they could also just be really creative writers. Yes. And good at sounding like a man instead of a woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the same year that her mother first ended up in a hospital, Evelyn married Lionel Harris in 1941. 
He was a corporal in the Australian Air Force. I found conflicting information on when Evelyn became Anne. Some say that she married Lionel under the name Anne Hamilton, changing it when she was 20. And others say that by the late 1950s, she became Anne. Okay. She had a daughter with Lionel in 1943 named Judith. Judith changed her name to Natasha later in life, probably to get away from anything having to do with her mom. And you'll see why. <laughs> Natasha was Anne's only biological child. Lionel left the Air Force and became a car salesman because he was worried about Anne's mental health. Okay. She was cold and distant with Judith. She was neglecting her and she ended up being diagnosed with depression. Sadly, Lionel died in a car accident in Bathurst, New South Wales, on his way to Sydney to adopt a little boy on January 8th, 1955. He was only 33 years old. Wow. Maybe that was like the universe's way of saying they didn't need another child. Probably. If his wife was already cold and distant, like to me, why would you bring another child into that? That doesn't sound like a good decision. Not that he deserved to die in a car wreck. I guess that sounded heartless. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sorry, dude. (laughs) You should die now. (laughs) (laughs) The universe was saying, no, stop. Yeah, like that's not a good idea. This woman isn't a maternal figure. (laughs) I believe that this was possibly the catalyst of what was to come. Even though she wasn't attentive to her own daughter, she dreamed of having a very large family. She dreamed of that because her mom did, I wonder, if she was just trying to fulfill the same. Who knows? It's like when you come from such a large family and all you experience is poverty and being in an orphanage and always wanting and needing. They did say that in the orphanage, it was like in an expensive part of town. So she saw these other children who had everything. And so she started dreaming of a different life. And maybe that included being able to take care of children instead of them being in that type of situation. Yeah. Yeah. For the next decade, there's not much documented on her. So I don't really know what happened for, I don't know, like eight, 10 years. But at some point, she studied under a Swiss woman. Margaret Segsman, who claimed to have lived in an Indian cave for five years and followed a Tibetan guru. Margaret opened the Gita School of Yoga in 1960 and became a yoga teacher in Melbourne and Geelong. And a new version of Anne was born. Oh. She started to claim that she had a Tibetan guru. Oh, okay. She was a trained nurse and a qualified physiotherapist. Just made that stuff up? Yep. She started just rewriting who she was. What is it? Fake it (laughs) till you make it? That's what she did (laughs) until she died. Yoga was a new fad in Australia in the 1960s. Anne first experienced her ability to recruit by successfully recruiting wealthy, middle-aged women to her yoga classes. Mm -hmm. And feminism and new age spirituality was on the rise as well. Yeah. These women saw her as having this sort of spiritual power as well. She would say something was going to happen and it would. Okay. One man in her yoga class disagreed with her on something and she didn't like that. And she told another person that he wouldn't be coming to class tomorrow because he was going to be sick. Okay. And then he was. So she's a witch. Kind of. Not the good kind. So she managed to start a following mainly of women who just wanted to be in her presence. Okay. It was actually this incident that caused Margaret Sexman to break away from her because she kind of saw it as this girl's bad voodoo crap. She didn't want to be a part of it. Some believe she channeled demonic power to influence people to her will. Mm, Interesting thought. So in 1965, she married a man named Michael Riley. He was a naval officer. At the time they married, he was a gardener and a caterer at Queens College, University of Melbourne. 
The marriage only lasted a year, but prior to their marriage, Michael introduced her to the master of Queens College, Dr. Rainer Carey Johnson. He was highly educated. He was an English physicist and mystic and 20 years older than her. Wow. Individually, they both studied different religions and explored spirituality. He became her closest associate in the cult that was to come and followed several teachings, theosophy, anthroposophy, Swami Muktananda, and other Indian gurus. Rainer became interested in spirituality after meeting with someone who was interested in Hinduism and Buddhism. Rainer, as we seem to say a lot here, went down the rabbit hole of that and expanded his beliefs and went on to write four popular books about occult and the paranormal. The Imprisoned Splendor, Nurslings of Immortality, Watcher on the Hills, and The Light in the Gate. The two of them connected deeply and soon Rainer's wife, Mary, was included in discussions and predicted that Mary would fall ill. Oh, yeah, that's convenient because you want her man. <laughs> no, not this one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rainer and Mary went on a trip to India to meet two gurus. And while there, Mary became severely ill with dysentery and it solidified their belief in Anne. Okay. And her abilities and the importance of who she was. It was after this and more discussion that Rainer, Mary, and their daughter, Maureen, and four others became the first seven followers of Anne's in a group they called the Great White Brotherhood of Initiates and Masters. Okay, why'd they have to make it sound so racist, though? I know. The Great White Brotherhood. Like, you could have just been the Great Brotherhood. And if she's, like, the lead, why is it the Brotherhood? That, too, right? Yeah, it should have been weird. sisterhood. Well, Rainer and his wife bought a home in Fernie Creek where Anne lived, and the recruiting began. Okay. Anne presented herself as the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? And she dubbed Rainer as her John the Baptist. Okay. Literally. Rainer believed the spirits chose him to walk beside her. This is weird already. <laughs> Quick side note. She was constantly undergoing plastic surgery to look younger. I post a picture <laughs> of her before and after, like when she was married to Lionel, to her now. Even Rainer said when he met her, he thought she was 30, but she was actually 41. Okay. She also had liposuction later in life in an attempt to keep a certain figure, which just made her all that more appealing to people that she met. Okay. She was interesting. Was she very pretty? I didn't find her to be myself, okay. but everybody claims there wasn't a lore to her regardless. Anne was still teaching yoga at this time, and this is when she started to recruit even more women. A lot of women were Jewish from wealthier suburbs. She befriended women in unhappy marriages. Okay. who then became unwavering in their loyalty to her. And this is how she found her aunties, which I will get to here in a bit. She called them her aunties? She called them aunties, yeah. Okay. Through introductions by Rainer, she convinced and recruited powerful, wealthy, professional people who included doctors, lawyers, politicians, psychiatrists, teachers, etc. One of these followers was Howard Whitaker. He was a psychiatrist at New Haven, which was a private hospital in an elite neighborhood called Kew. Okay. Or Q. There were two other psychiatrists at this hospital, family psychiatrists, Harry Bethune and John McKay. She specifically wanted New Haven and medical professionals in her arsenal, her disciples. All three were members, including Marion Villamick, who owned and managed New Haven. Okay. This will come back later. Cooperation of a private hospital was important, and it's scary for someone to have that kind of control. Yeah, what is she wanting to do? do in that hospital. Yeah, we'll get to it. As the Brotherhood grew, they started to buy up properties in the Dandenong Ranges, which was about 35 kilometers outside of Melbourne. It was a beautiful forested area. 
and in other places they owned other properties. She is believed to have owned at least a dozen homes in Fernie Creek. I'm not sure all of them, but here are some of the important ones that we know about that were connected to the cult. We had Anne's house, which was called Winbera in Fernie Creek. The Santa Nicotin Lodge, which was sort of like their ritual center. Okay. That was also in Fernie Creek. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you do. Important (laughs) to every cult. Kailama. This was also called Up Top by the children. This was on Lake Ilden, and it was about 150 kilometers from Melbourne. She owned a property in Olinda and a large property outside of Charlagon, Victoria. Later, she bought properties outside of Australia. She had a large property in the Catskill Mountains in New York, and she had Broom Farm in Kent, England. Also, at least another in England, but couldn't confirm exactly where, but read possibly in Crowborough, Red Hill, and East Sussex, or both. So she was quite the property guru, Mm -hmm. too. She had a lot of money, Mm -hmm. estimated at the time around $150 million, which was quite the step up from her childhood and her first two husbands and being the fact that she was a yoga teacher. I was about to say, yoga's paying good for this lady. Right. So how did she get so many people to follow her and pay her? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Teach me your ways. (laughs) I don't want to be a cult leader. Well... At first, she played that rich, witchy girl. So she played the part. Okay. You know? At first, she sounded kind of cool in the beginning of how people described her. I'm like, oh, that's me, you know? Mm-hmm. Actually, my daughter, I was picking her up from school the other day, and she was walking with me, and she goes, like, out loud in front of everyone, she goes, Mom, you know how I'm a witch? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a witch because you're a witch. You're a witch. <laughs> and well, anyway, during quiet time, my friend and I were researching fairies and it made me think of you. I love you. And then she just like walked ahead of me. <laughs> like, thanks. It was really funny. She's always saying stuff in front of people. <laughs> so rich, witchy girl she was. Cosmetic surgery to make her look a decade younger. She wore Chanel, expensive clothing and jewelry. She drove Jaguars. She played the harp and sang soprano. She had different wigs, but was known mostly for thick, wavy blonde hair, even though that wasn't her natural color. Her eyes were this grayish blue. One ex-cult member, Fran Parker, said she had eyes that looked through your soul. Mm. She was an enchantress. Later, she even claimed to be descended from French aristocracy. But how? I thought she was Jesus reincarnated. Well, yeah, she had to (laughs) live a life first before she became Jesus, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. One article I found about her, she courted women with her mind and men with her body. Okay. Women wanted to be like her and men were obsessed with her. Anne said that all she did was give them love. But in reality, she tore people down, broke their spirit and controlled them. Did you ever watch that show on Hulu, Nine Strangers? Yes. Was that Nicole Kidman? That's who I'm picturing right now. Remember? Because she was the same way. She was like ethereal in a way. And like everybody was like obsessed with her youthful looks. And I don't know. That's just the person I'm picturing right now. Hmm. I'm guessing this. And I'm trying to remember. Nicole is Australian. So that's true. But I'm sure like Nicole Kidman's probably much more beautiful than this woman. But that's who I'm (laughs) picturing at the moment. I mean, different scenarios and ways. But I mean, kind of, I guess I could see it. I'm trying to think. I remember that. That was a good show. Because it was like a health, yeah, a health retreat <laughs> yeah, and all that. I'm right. like, this is her. But she didn't let just anyone into her cult. She was very picky. You got to have money. Literally, she handpicked them. Okay. And then she would groom them. On first meeting a potential recruit, she would say, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> that sounds ominous. You are special. 
just like in America in the 60s and 70s, you know, new age was all the rage. She promised them spiritual fulfillment, but they weren't your typical hippie group. You know, there weren't flowers in your hair and sex parties and stuff like that. But there were drugs. So they took all the fun. Not in a fun way. I was going to say, they took all the fun (laughs) out of it. Yeah. Drugs were there for a very specific purpose. Oh, it's one of those. You got to take them as a ritual. (laughs) So... What did she believe and what did she teach to her followers? She never published her ideas, but she taught a mixture of Eastern religious concepts along with some Christian ideas. She recommended spiritual writers to her followers and expected them to read those works and fully understand them. Yeah, that doesn't sound as much fun as like sex orgies. (laughs) No. (laughs) Sorry, you got to read books. And I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't know it was this kind of cult. Well, she felt these specific books were altogether like her ideology, her view of the world. Those included Yoga and the Bible by Joseph Lemming, the autobiography of a yogi by Parhamsa Yogananda, and The Science of Breath by Swami Vivekananda. What she taught was apocalyptic. Uh Uh-oh. It was a doomsday cult. She was Jesus Christ, reincarnated. She prophesied the end of the world, but that she had a special plan that would keep her and her followers safe. Don't they all? She didn't publish, but her right-hand Rainer kept intricate diaries. I'll read a passage here in a bit. At some point, war, a natural disaster, or something would ravage humanity and erase most of the population. Aliens would come down to rescue Anne and her followers before the destruction, only for them to emerge as those that would help bring humanity back together and teach. The aliens would know exactly who they are and would simply just come down and get them, open the doors, and they would walk right in. (laughs) (laughs) The way people come up with these ideas. (laughs) This is the way that she used to push what she called the perfect discipline. So here enter the children, oh no. which was a real focus of this family. Yeah, you got to catch them young and brainwash them. And you'll see how she gets these children. Starting in 1969, Anne started acquiring children, 14 of them. Acquiring them how? They were obtained through illegal adoptions. Uh-oh. Arranged by lawyers, doctors, and social workers that were in the group. Oh, God. Who could bypass normal protocols. So they just go and get these poor orphan children and say, you're part of this cult now? Yeah. Oh, God. In some cases, he would find young mothers who wanted to put their children up for adoption or were forced. So if you look back into Australian history around this time, there was a really, really big stigma around children out of wedlock. And so... They were pushed and pushed like, you know, you don't get to have this kid. I watched this like public apology to all the women and the children who at this time, they were given no resources, no way to make a decision otherwise. And so a lot of families were destroyed. That's horrible. So these young mothers would choose to or not choose to really put the child up for adoption. And she would do it illegally, though. She had several important hospital staff as part of the sect and would have them carry it out. The baby was born. The mother's face would be covered with a pillow so she couldn't see the child. And the baby was taken out of the room immediately after birth. Wow. The children's identities were changed using false birth certificates or what they called deed poles. All were given the surname Hamilton Byrne. Oh, nice. (laughs) And to keep up the ruse with the other children and some of the members... And faked numerous pregnancies by wearing homemade smocks for years. She was just constantly pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) 
based on her age, many didn't believe it actually, came to find out that she had a hysterectomy before most of these children were even born. Oh, okay. But at its peak, there were 28 children in the family. Wow. And she claimed them all as her own? No. Okay. Uh, she claimed 14 as her own. She had a lot of triplets. Yeah. She had like twins. <laughs> and she did. She did. She, did, she had twins and triplets. The other children were referred to as like fosters. But they were like either other members' children that like handed them over. Or, okay. But most knew her as mother. And the ones that didn't know her as mother called her Auntie Anne. But why children? Like the pretzels? Auntie Anne? Oh, those are so good. Oh my God. Now that I want that <laughs> for hungry. lunch. Can we go to Auntie Anne's? That's too far away. Yeah, it's Dang in it. a mall probably. It is. I'm obsessed with pretzels like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, why children? So Rainer speaks of the children in his unpublished diary in a section that he titled, Suffer the Little Children to Come Unto Me. Okay, that doesn't sound appealing. (laughs) Viewed as a piece of organization with devoted and sacrificial help, it is staggering in its outlook. Yeah, it was planned with consciousness of its magnitude and the great responsibility of its undertaking. Only a great master, equally at home in this world and the next, could have hoped to carry it through. It amounted to this. A group of children, some already born here, some yet to be born, were brought together, fostered and adopted and trained from the beginning of their lives in perfect conditions as could be provided. Their health was meticulously supervised and all aspects of their welfare and education were considered and provided for. Before they came, it was known by the master when and where and what parents they were coming from and what qualities they potentially brought with them from past lives. It is safe to say that the future age will see them, unknown though they are, as custodians and continuers of the work their master has going in many parts of the world. So it was just like this planned thing with tons of kids. Wow. And while having an LSD trip, had a vision. (laughs) She said that children were going to help save the world after an impending apocalypse. Oh, okay. To re-educate what's left of the world. So she needed to collect children from birth and prepare them. That sounds real creepy, collecting children. (laughs) Collecting, because that's what she did. Before talking more about the children, I want to talk a bit about some of the adult members, the different groups within the organization, and Anne's new beau, Bill Byrne. Oh, she got a new man. So now she's Hamilton Byrne. Bill Byrne was a successful, wealthy businessman. I'm not sure what year she actually met him, but she decided that that's who she wanted. Mm, Okay. At the time, though, he was married with four children. Well, that's just an inconvenience. (laughs) It was. (laughs) She had her sights on him and did everything she could to make him hers. But Bill's wife, May, (laughs) was like, "Um, no. And she tried to save the marriage and her family. But Anne's tentacles were already too far and her influence was undeniable. And she had some buddies at New Haven. No. Suddenly, May was committed to New Haven. (gasps) And put on tons of drugs. That's horrible. And it's known that Anne went to visit her and just said, give up. Bill's mine. fucked up. Yeah. Anne eventually married Bill in 1978. They both went by the surname Hamilton Byrne. From then on, all the children's names were Hamilton Byrne. So she married him and then made him take her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, she took his too. So Hamilton Byrne. She's like, mine's first. (laughs) Yeah. So this is because Bill was more of a handbag to Anne. Okay. And a lot of members saw him that way. He didn't have any real power in the family. He did what she said. Some of the children actually really loved him and did see him as daddy. Okay. Even though he wasn't around often, they were constantly gone. They were traveling. They were vacationing. They had all these other houses and properties and other places, and they were recruiting people. Some considered him 
her victim in a lot of ways. That Sounds like he it. was brainwashed. He was a little puppy, but he did have a temper. Okay. And when the temper grew, he was violent towards the children, especially the girls. Oh no. So he was both. I didn't find much about Bill's children, but I believe they were grown at the time or at least close to it because one of the children that was part of the family that thought Anne and Bill were her parents growing up, she came to find out that she was actually Bill's son's daughter and he was coerced into handing her over to them because guess what? He had four children and those four children didn't want to be part of the family. So Michael ended up in New Haven. But that's oh no, where he again? met a girl named Trina and fell in love with her. And they she and got had a baby. And yep, then they so, were like, that baby is mine. Exactly. So that's how this little girl ended up with Bill and Ann. And the other children, they just became estranged because he demanded that they have loyalty to Ann and they weren't having it. So he lost his whole family. That's uh, in addition to Rainer, her John the Baptist, Howard Whitaker, her trusted psychiatrist. There was also Peter Kibbe. He was the chief solicitor of the family, the big guns lawyer, the guy who is part of all documentation. At -hmm. one point, members of her inner circle claimed to be reincarnations of the original 12 apostles. Oh, that's convenient. (laughs) Before the children, they held weekly meditation sessions and Anne started giving sermons from her purple throne at the Santa Nikintin Lodge, which was built through donations from her members. Hundreds would show up. She collected 10% of her followers' incomes and amassed a fortune. 10%. 10%. That's quite the tithing. Although many turned over nearly everything they had to her. Some signed over their businesses to her, left money in their wills, and gave their divorce settlements to her after Anne encouraged them to divorce. She broke up every marriage that was ever involved in this cult. I just, like, the amount of power these people get over other people just baffles me every time. Like, I can never imagine giving somebody all my money. Honestly, I know that that's because so many of us, regardless of what we do in life, are yearning to like be a part of something greater and for someone to see them. And and if they actually feel that way, then you have complete control over them. That's true. And that's what they go after. They feel like they have a purpose in life now. Yeah. So if she wasn't at these meetings, though, they listened to recordings of her. (laughs) So they would all sit in a room (laughs) and listen to a tape (laughs) facing a purple throne and listen to a tape (laughs) while she's out like partying on the beach somewhere. She's in England, (laughs) like doing something. She taught that the reality of karma is true and that multiple lives exist through reincarnation. You have endless lives and that everybody has already had millions of lives and that karma from our past lives follow us and build up. So I get frustrated when I start to talk about these cults because I'm like, I already agree with those certain types of things in many ways, maybe not to certain extents, but an understanding of them. But you use this against somebody. Yes. She believed that she could get rid of everyone's karma in this life so that when the time came, her prophesied end of the world, they would be one with God consciousness and would end the cycle of life and death that this would be their last life. Okay. So they'd reach nirvana or whatever. Right. Yeah. And preyed upon people. Isn't she worried about her own fucking karma? Come on. (laughs) No, because she doesn't actually believe it. Yeah. She's She's like making up shit at this point. Not just the professional and wealthy people did she prey on, but those who were also troubled in some way. So she would find people who had like the whole package in her mind, Mm -hmm. whether it was a midlife crisis, someone from a broken family, alcoholics, someone with like a quiet drug addiction, those who experienced death of loved ones, 
they had absent parents growing up, so they were seeking for something different. Maybe they dealt with sexual or physical abuse, whatever it was that caused them to be looking for answers, right? A deeper spiritual meaning to life. She would first look up their education, their reputation, and their bank account, whatever, to see whatever power they could transfer to her at some point. And then she would get to know them to figure out what was broken or have others who got to know them figure out what was broken and report it to her. Wow. She made her followers take dangerous amounts of LSD (laughs) and other hallucinogens as part of initiation rites. She's like, if I fry your brain enough with LSD, (laughs) you'll continue to give me all your money. Well, LSD was medically legal at this point in Mm -hmm. Australia. Come in New Haven. She had it down to a science. Once a recruit or member was high, she would appear to them all angelic and godlike. She would come out in a white flowy dress with smoke behind her. (laughs) (laughs) One of the detectives just joked that she was just like standing in front of a bunch of dry ice or something. (laughs) And fans blowing towards her. She did this to solidify their allegiance to her and that she was really Jesus returned. During the LSD initiation, she would use the information gathered to convince them of their past karma and the deep-seated issues that they have from their past lives so that she could free them through her own power to pay for their karma. Goodness. She also used these trips, though, to gain more knowledge of about them. them. Yeah. Because remember, LSD was kind of being studied as a truth serum at the time. So they're all just confessing their darkest, deepest secrets. And she's like, tell me more. Yeah. Once they had submitted and believed that their karma was absolved, she'd dictate every aspect of their lives. There was only one rule to do absolutely everything she said. (laughs) That included what to think, what to wear, what to eat, what to engage in, frauds, forgeries, spousal swaps and scam adoptions. Absolute total obedience. That is crazy. To one woman. The cult's motto was unseen, unheard, and unknown. And she used to make her followers recite a mantra promising loyalty. For neither have I betrayed any secrets to thine enemies, nor have I given thee the kiss of Judas. <laughs> okay. She was very, I'm the Messiah, who's yes. my Judas type of Right, crap. who's going to sell me out. Right. So it was constantly this control of them. Anne was talented, very talented in splitting up families, which I kind of mentioned, and she's done herself for herself. And then she would make them marry other people. Many people, especially women of the cult, became estranged from their own families. Like if they became like the only cult member and they had families back home or something like that. Yeah, because they're all like, you're in a cult. Right. (laughs) If anyone spoke up or asked too many questions, she would threaten them with being sent to New Haven. That's, yeah. And not for LSD, but committed as a patient. She would say, it only takes two psychiatrists to commit you and you'll be there for years if that's what I say should happen. Wow. Some actually did receive shock treatment at New Haven for questioning things. So having control of a private hospital, that is a very scary That's thing. Fucked up. I mean, like she could give these people lobotomies. Like she could oh, do. Oh, I'll get there. Oh God, it's going to happen. It Fuck. does happen for somebody. Some women, you know, they left their marriages and didn't have kids yet or something right. like that. And they're like, well, I want kids. And out of nowhere, she would call them and be like, oh, go pick up your baby. You have a kid now. You have a kid now. <laughs> and they thought it was, I don't know. They thought it was legal or whatever. They just thought. Divine oh, intervention. I told her. Who knows all the talking that went on to it, yeah. but when they went to go pick up the child, it was literally like, oh, here's your kid, like, and handed it to them. <laughs> She's crazy. She's making dreams come true for them. I guess so. At the cost of But God then knows what. later in life, she's like, okay, now give me that one. Oh, <laughs> now I want that one back yeah. to brainwash. Family members of cult followers that were not 
themselves part of the family became frightened of yeah. the family frightened of those who like really knew what was going on because a lot of them actually didn't. A lot of the cult members did not know everything. Elsie mm-hmm. Johnson, who was the daughter-in-law of Rainer Johnson was scared of him and the cult. So scared at one point she called her child's primary school to tell them that absolutely no one, no one can pick up my daughter except me or her father because yeah. she was scared that they were going to steal her kid. Her yeah, kid. I would be too. She's like, if anybody comes to you saying that they're her grandparents or her aunties, hell no, uncles, yes. <laughs> nobody, only us. Rainer's other daughter, however, who went by Christine Fleming, was also a, a lawyer. She ended up legally changing her name to Anne Hamilton Byrne That's so that creepy. she could fraudulently sign documents for Anne. She's single white femaleing her. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> so weird. But Anne wanted to expand her cult more. As I mentioned before, she followed Swami Muktananda. He had a multi-million dollar empire at the time. Okay. He was a yoga guru and founder of Siddha Yoga. He had an ashram in South Fallsburg, New York. So she went ahead and bought the house in the Catskill Mountains in upstate Hurleyville, New York. And it was really close to him. She would bring the children there on several occasions to stay at his ashram. He would give special attention to the children and ask them, hey, you want to come live with me in my ashram in India? Uh. And the kids were like, yes, 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 essentially. <laughs> and Anne was very pissed off because they were being disloyal to her. Yeah, she doesn't want those kids no. leaving. Because Anne had a different purpose for involving herself in the ashram there. Oh. She wanted to steal his followers and bring them to the family. Of course she did. The children were only up there because they never got to do this to show them off as her little entourage. One lady described her as like showing up and she's like, she was like a spider with all these spider babies. It was literally (laughs) the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. An ex-devotee of Muktananda, Joan Rada Bridges, said that she knew that he practiced black magic. So he was another kind of cult leader, probably. He was and believed that that was why Anne was there, that she wanted to learn things from him because she was jealous of him and she wanted power from him. In the end, she did manage to get a few to come over to her. And Honoree, one of the children, remembers being really confused when that happened because she didn't understand why someone would want to leave such a happy place and come to a place where everyone was miserable. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, but I want to stay here. Because they all wanted to stay with him. Yeah. Which is also creepy. Can I take all your children to to India with me? Like, that's weird, too. So two cult leaders are, like, hashing it out. Yeah, he's like, I'm more powerful than you. And apparently they both believe that they did have actual spiritual powers and that they can make things happen. At its peak, the members in Australia, at least, were around 500. Okay. They did have followers in other parts of the world. So now we need to talk about the children. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Not only was Anne, quote, mother to most of them, she told them, as we mentioned, that she was Jesus reincarnated and that in her life on Earth, she came from royalty Mm -hmm. and that she owned castles in Europe and that she was an opera singer. And they believed that she was beyond the Queen of England at the time. They thought that the Queen of England asked to have like tea with her. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Kind of. That's how they saw her. They didn't find out otherwise until later in life through media, like who she was and like everything about her. It wasn't until people started digging up her dirt that they're like, oh, Oh. (laughs) shit. And they got older and weren't as gullible. (laughs) It is believed that Anne chose specific children as her own, vetting for racial purity. Mm -hmm. If they didn't fit her image, quite literally, she would bleach their hair blonde, nearly white. Oh, my goodness. The only children 
that were allowed to keep their natural hair color were those with like auburn red hair because that was her natural color. Okay. Even though she just wore lots of wigs, but it was like red or, or that blonde. Like Okay. And they all dressed in the same clothing. Not creepy at all. Very Von Trapp-like. I did see a lot of different photos and it seems like she also dressed them based on like an age group as well. Like each age group had a different uniform? Like something like that. And the boy's haircut was, I just reminded me of Dumb and Dumber. It was kind of like that <laughs> bowl, bowl cut. <laughs> cut situation going on. Poor kids. And it was like chopped real bad. You could see it. It was just She's like, horrible. I'm going to make you as unattractive as possible. But the whole point was to make them look perfect. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know what was going on at that time. The children were housed at Kailama at Taylor Bay and Lake Ilden, two hours away from Anne's home in Fernie Creek. It was a five acre property surrounded by barbed wire fence. Oh, that's nice and homey. Yep. In 1984, Kailama was registered as a school called the Aquinnell College to keep suspicion of people back. Mm -hmm. However, they had to pass inspections each year. So this is when the children had to perform and everything was perfect and blah, 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 blah. Did they come out and do little like robotic singing dances? They were just so nice and so polite uh, yeah. and educated. And because it didn't seem weird that she had so many children, she had to pretend that some of them were twins or triplets, like we said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she would change this whenever she wanted. One of the sec children, Sarah, described that at first she was just one single kid. Okay. And then she was a twin. And then she was single again. And then she became part of a triplet situation. <laughs> like, I look nothing like any of these kids and we're not the same age. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to look past bleached hair sometimes. Yeah. It was mainly the girls who got to keep their, their hair color. Anne claimed to love children and that mm -hmm. she wanted to be a perfect mother. But she had zero interest in taking care of them herself. She had zero tolerance for them. If she was there and any of the children started to misbehave or act up, she was said to beat them with her stiletto heels. Oh, damn. Yeah. That would hurt. Yeah. So it was left to the aunties. To raise the kids? Correct. Most sect members didn't know what was really happening, as I mentioned, with the children. It was mostly kept secret apart from those who were like directly involved with the children. Ann and Bill would come back from trips and film the children running and happy and like spend time with them. And it was thought that these films were used to like recruit people oh. like look how happy we are look at your children it's that we're gonna family. take and it's just yeah. perfect but it was a really grim existence for these children Aww. all of the children were raised by the aunties I hate that by the way because it just makes me think of Handsmaid's Tale <laughs> right it does kind of aunties. in a way and when you see them they look like they look like fucking creepy. Handsmaid's Tale like they're beaters. wearing the uniforms and stuff it wasn't or? really uniforms but they just look like mean. it they're yeah. just mean looking people. Some of these women handed over their own children if they were young enough to be brainwashed. Right. Although for many of them, their children were grown. So it just became this broken situation and those children would just disassociate. Important aunties of the group included Patricia McFarlane or Webb later. That's what's hard when I was researching this. So many of them divorced, remarried, changed names. Yes. It was so hard to keep them. track of. Elizabeth Whitaker, who had two of her own sons there and whose husband, although divorced at some point and married someone else, was the psychiatrist. <laughs> oh, OK. Margaret McLillan, born Peggy Warren and Wynne Bellman. They were not nice aunties. There were more. But what these poor children went through was, of course, just horrible. On page, it comes off as this boarding school for like intelligent, free loving children they were brought up in a regimen of yoga, meditation, spiritual study, 
and vegetarianism, but it was very strict. So no child fun, no like no, normal and, children. And remember, she's getting these these kids as infants. Right. So they know this nothing else. This is all they know. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder what happened to them as babies. Like when they couldn't do anything yet. Yeah. Did you was, treat them as babies? Who was taking care of them? Yeah. Did they receive like cuddles and kisses from anybody? Probably not. They probably all <laughs> laid in little incubator beds and like just got the fed. Hospital. Yeah. yeah. Their lives were hell on repeat. Every day they were up at 530 a.m. They made their beds. They did yoga. Then they had to listen to Anne's sermons or oh teachings from me. Swami Muktananda. <laughs> <laughs> then they chanted mantras for 15 minutes. They had fruit for breakfast. They had schoolwork for three hours, then meditated more for an hour. Their lunch was steamed vegetables. Then they had schoolwork for another three and a half hours until 4 p.m. After that, girls showered one day, boys showered the next. And from five to nine, there was more yoga, meditation, more vegetables for dinner, which was described as just like bland. Like Like nothing. Yeah. I just think of like reheating like just one of those frozen bags or something. Yeah. They would read spiritual texts, did more homework, and then they went to sleep. And they did this 365 days a year. Worst church camp ever. Ever. (laughs) You liked your church camp. (laughs) Damn. But what I didn't mention was the violence. Oh, no. The isolation, withholding of food, and drugs. Drugs? And drugs. I mean, maybe they want to be drugged up if that's their existence. They don't know anything else, too. Yeah. remember that. There's literally nothing else. They think this is life. The children were regularly beaten. No. And starved for misbehavings. Much of which they didn't even know was bad or not allowed. Like they're growing up. They're They've learning never these seen, things. Yeah, anything outside. <laughs> they would be beaten for the smallest of things. Touching a light switch. Oh my God. Turning on a fan or someone thought they'd like turn something on and they didn't. And So so not being a robot, you got beaten or yep. starved. If they got a little dirty outside. Before making the beds in the morning, the aunties would rip off blankets to see if anyone went the bed. Oh God. And if they did... They were belted or they were locked in tiny cupboards. Oh, my God. Rarely was a child not abused before the day really started. Outside of beatings, their hands would be held over candles. Their heads were often held underwater in buckets until nearly drowning. Oh, my goodness. Food, though, was the main thing of control there. A child would often go without if they did anything wrong. Depending on their crime, they would go one day to a week without food. So overall, the children were very malnourished. For a growing child? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is horrific. But their weight was also important to Anne. Anne, as a child, was nicknamed Putty. Oh, so she, okay. And as I mentioned, she had liposuction later in life. But even with that, she still was this voluptuous, you know, type of figure. She was never ever skinny. Yeah. So she's projecting her insecurities on all these children. She wanted her children to be ideal. And their food was not just cut off because of bad behavior, but also she felt like they were putting on too much weight. That's but so remember, they're probably like pot bellied at some point. All like kids go through not, that. It's like yeah. just normal body before growing. they have a growth spurt. Right. My daughter, I look at her as a little toddler and I'm like, look at you. You're so I have little chunky. <laughs> I remember yeah. both my kids going through ages like they would get little like pudgy and then they would shoot up like right. five inches and it would they would then, thin out again. Now my daughter is just this like lanky little girl. That's what they do. Yeah. And that's just life. And right. that's what your body needs to do to grow. Mm-hmm. In an interview I watched with some of the children like now grown up, they would sometimes take these walks near their homes with the aunties, but they would run and like peer through the window just to see if someone was eating so that they could see what they were eating because all they had was vegetables vegetables. yeah it was just really really sad 
some of the girls would try and throw up before weighings to like lessen their weight. Wow. So they wouldn't miss out on more food. And one of the children later referred to what they went through as like imposed anorexia. Yeah. The kids would eat grass and bird seed from outside just to supplement hunger. Oh, my gosh. As proof of the children's malnutrition, one of the girls, Cassandra, who was 11 at the time she was rescued, looked like she was about four or five years old. And she weighed only 44 pounds. And within her first year of freedom, she grew almost four inches. Well, I'm glad it was like able to be reversed. Yeah. A little bit. So... Even though Anne wasn't there a lot, she kept a close ear on what was being done to punish the children. She would call the aunties just to be on speaker, essentially, Mm -hmm. so that she could hear the children being punished or beaten. So she liked it. She got off on it. That's fucked. If the children formed close relationships with one another and she heard about it, she would specifically split them up. She didn't want any of them to have close relationships with one another. Even though they're the only ones they knew since birth. like and. That's normal. And it's called the family. wanted them like only loving her. Yes. They were given daily doses of Magadon and Valium to keep them docile. Wow. And doses of other psychiatric drugs. Like there was at least like 10 listed. That's crazy. Things that kids should never have. And mushrooms. They were frequently given those as well. At the age of 14, they had what was called the clearing. The clearing? It was an initiation into the family even more. God, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> no, actually, do tell me. While under the influence of LSD, mm. they would leave the child in a dark room. Oh, no. Like with the adults, they were deprived of food and sleep. That just was to add to their delirium. And this wasn't just like one dose. This was dose Way after dose much. after dose after dose for a long period of time. And would appear and manipulate them to ensure that they really saw her as Jesus reincarnated. Oh, my God. Sometimes these trips lasted for days and weeks. These poor children. And these children have already been through like a lifetime of trauma. And after this initiation, they just were different people. They completely changed. Like broke them. Got even more depressed. Yeah. But then they were just thrown right back into it. So she just wanted their absolute loyalty to her. And that's how she did it was she wanted, through these LSD trips. She wanted a little troop of zombie children. Yeah. And they already were, though. Like, yeah. what's the point at 14? <laughs> uh, Barbara Kibbe, an ex-member, said that Anne was very cruel to pregnant women, too. If a Why? member became pregnant, she would treat them horribly and she would ban other members from visiting them. Maybe because, I don't know, maybe she was jealous. jealous yeah. Maybe because she couldn't do it. It's so weird. It is. To be... Because remember, she faked being pregnant for years. Yeah, you and think then she would someone embrace, else who gets yeah. pregnant, though, she's like, no, I'm supposed to be the pregnant one. I'm the one that's supposed to have the children. I don't know Not what it was. These ones. She didn't like any other woman getting attention is what it sounds like. Right. So Barbara, this happened to her. Mm-hmm. And she said that a lot of women in the cult would deal with pre and postnatal depression. Yeah. And she did really, really bad with it. And she was so depressed that she couldn't think she couldn't drive. She got really, really thin and she would shake all the time. And then Anne would use this against her and say, well, you're not capable of caring for your new baby. I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, no. So she ended up doing this to two of Barbara's children. And at the time, she also was like, well, Anne is Anne. Like, you know, this is Jesus. She's Jesus. She didn't know at the time what was happening at Kailama. Wow. But she found out how badly they were being treated because one of the children, David, Anne actually said, mm, take him back. If he stays here, he's going to die because he was not doing good at all. He wasn't speaking and he was like 
seven at the time. Oh, wow. So he didn't speak at all. And she said that actually later in life, he has absolutely no memory before seven years old. Trauma. So he got to, yeah. I mean, he was probably one of the lucky ones to not have to remember anything. Yes. Yeah. But her other son was not so lucky. Matthew, he came back and when he was a teenager, he tried to commit suicide at 16. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work, but he did eventually succumb to his depression when he was 20. Both of her children's lives were just completely ruined. Of course. They're just How ruined. would they not and be? And her, her life is ruined too. Yeah, she lost her two children she's, in that way. She said that she's still like, she just doesn't trust anybody. And she looked oh, like a really yeah. sweet woman. It's just, you trust people. I would never give my child away. So it's like a no, hard place yeah. to be in. Like, it's hard to be in that mindset. But. And we always say, yeah, we would never. We say we would never get caught up in that kind of, you know, cult mentality. But a lot of those people who did get caught up in it said the same thing. They like, said the same thing. And you don't you know that you don't in. know what it is. At first, you probably just think it's like a big group of like like minded yeah, friends that or practice yoga and you're all wealthy and blah, blah, blah. I mean, look at religion has been doing this for years. I know. And people it's what like boiling. those are just the ones that weren't called cults yet. It's like they the boiling grew, the frog, grew, right? Grew. Or whatever. Ugh. The water just gets warmer and warmer yeah. until it's too late. So I wasn't able to locate every child's name that was there, but here are the ones that I was able to find. And I'm going to recount some of their testimony now that they're in their 40s and their 50s and what their time was like at Kailama and their thoughts now. Yeah. So we have Jesse Michael, Anthony Lee, and Simon John McKay, and a girl named Charlotte. I don't know much about them. That's why I'm just listing them off. And then we have David and Matthew Kibbe, who we just talked about. Right. And now I'm just going to say what some of them said. Wayne Callister. So he wasn't one of the main children. His mother gave birth to him at 16. And despite no help from her family and because he was born out of wedlock, she did raise him, though. She didn't give him away. So she okay. tried. She ended up marrying a cult member, though. Oh, no. And one day at the age of 10, so Wayne was already like, he wasn't as a baby. At the age of 10, he came home and he found his mother on the floor unresponsive. Uh Uh-oh. She was alive, though. He went to his neighbors and ironically, it was Elizabeth Whitaker because Elizabeth Whitaker is one of the aunts, but she was also a registered nurse, was Mm -hmm. the one that showed up. Somehow, she ended up in New Haven. Oh, no. And he was taken by Elizabeth to live at Kailama for a while. Oh, God. So he'd had a normal childhood. He had had a normal childhood up to that point. And she met someone in the cult. He was one of the fosters that some of the kids would call other people who weren't there for a really long time. His stepfather, a cult member, did not try to take him, find him. Meanwhile, they were telling him, your mom's sick. She's not a good mother. She's mentally ill. She can't take care of you. About a year later, even though he was only 11, they gave him psilocybin and they tried to initiate him. Oh, wow. Probably because he didn't grow up. Right. They're like family the same way. Yeah. Once he was under, he remembers feeling hands near his genitals and his butt. Oh, God. I was watching a documentary when he was talking about this and he actually said the person's name who did it, but it was bleeped out. So I don't know who that is. But for the next few days, he bled from his oh, no. his anus. And yeah, I mean, he was sexually assaulted. They were probably doing that to all the children under the influence of the drugs. And other children made similar claims. That's but there's absolutely n- horrific. This is years before. Like, what yeah. are you going to find? And then we have Roland and Dave Whitaker. They were children of Don Webb and Elizabeth Whitaker. Quick side note. In addition to breaking up marriages, you know, she swapped partners. So... Oh, Don was originally married to Patricia 
Webb, who was another aunt, and Elizabeth was originally married to Howard Whitaker, the psychiatrist. Okay. And so Dave was the biological son of Howard and Elizabeth. And this is kind of where it gets confusing. Roland, however, was told he was the son of Don and Elizabeth, but he was actually illegally adopted as a baby. Oh, God. As well. Okay. So Dave and Roland were not real siblings. Dave was a little bit older and he knew this, but he was told that Roland would kill himself if he found out. So he never said anything anything to him. Elizabeth was a very vicious aunt. So she's the quintessential like handsmaid's tale. Yeah, I'm picturing that that woman right now. He referred to, so this is now Roland talking. He referred to her as a bitch Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he hated her. Which is very interesting when I talk about him later on in the story. Later on, he became the kid that caused a lot of troubles. He started acting out. He would cause fires. He would steal cars. Like, he was just doing anything. Eventually, he was too much for them at Kailama, and he was sent to a different sect of the family for a bit of time. Okay. But, yeah, I'll talk about him in a little bit because his involvement with the family later on is very confusing. But he had a very confusing life Life, growing up. Yeah, he was brainwashed (laughs) from the beginning. Then we have Ben Shenton. His mother was a part of the cult as well. And by proxy, he became one of the 28 children. Okay. And he was handed over to Ann and Bill when he was 18 months old. He grew up thinking those are his parents. Okay. He wrote a blog that I read and he did this after Ann died at old age. He didn't actually find out that they weren't his parents until he was rescued. Okay. And finding out who his actual mother was, it was not a great experience for him because unlike some of the other children whose parents were just not part of anything, they were just taken from random people. His mother ended up being one of the evil aunts and that just crushed him because he thought he was going to find a new family and something else and it ended up being one of the bitches. And he's like, I don't know. Yeah. So... He did approach her, though, and she told him he was a disappointment and there was no hope for any mother-son relationship. Fuck her. But over time and speaking on it, in 2019, he said, I have reconnected with her. Even though she isn't physically in the cult anymore, she is still living with the fallout of her decisions to give her life to Anne. Yeah. And she feels a great love and loyalty still for a woman who, by her own admission, believed was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. It has cost her many relationships in her family. Yeah. And financial independence was gone. And she's 87 and still working. Wow. We eventually connected about 15 years ago and have slowly worked through a relationship where while there is honesty, there are topics that we do not agree on and are too painful for my mother to work through. So we can't talk about them. Yeah. He recalled a time when Elizabeth fell asleep with the fan on and she thought that she turned it off. Okay. But she woke up and it was on and she lost her mind thinking one of the children turned it on. And she had a very long ruler. They had these really long, like three-sided rulers. And she just started swinging. She was smacking and hitting all of the children all at once. Every single one of them got hit. Like, yeah, I just don't. fan. This is just a sadistic old bitch, basically. And I was listening to Dave talk about his mother because he grew up with her. Yeah. He was not a baby. When he came into the cult, he was older and he remembers his mother just being the sweetest mother ever. And he just right. doesn't understand what changed, what shifted for her to become so violent towards children. He has no idea. 
Like he's like, I have no idea what happened to my mother coming wow. into this cult because we had a great life growing up at first. And then she turned <laughs> and into, then a, she turned into like a witch. And then she turned into a witch. Another of the children named Honoree, she remembers spending most of her time alone, hiding under her bed. Aww. She shut down very early on. Poor thing. And she would sit there and have fantasies of living on Mars or mm. another planet without humans because she only knew humans to hurt her. Oh, that's Since so she was birthed, she thought adults were extremely dangerous people. And that's all she knew. None of the children had an identity for themselves. They didn't know their parents, really. I mean, yeah. they were told who their parents were, but they were always gone. Yeah, they weren't hanging out and sitting on their laps and reading stories. Right. And when they came back, they were just parading them for videos. Yeah. And she would say, because they never got food to make them happy when they came back, they would get promised like a bit of chocolate Did to they ever do get this it? video, you know? Yeah. And yeah. they were like, we wanted that. You know, all we had was vegetables, <laughs> vegetables and, or we was, were starved. Yes. So that chocolate was enough for us to run around acting like normal kids for a video for a little while. Mm. She mentions a time when Aunt Patricia used that three cornered stick ruler and she was watching her beat one of the other children, a boy, for about four to five minutes. And after that, she said he just put himself away for a long time and he recoiled into himself. And for a really long time after the beating like he just he wasn't himself again and mm. a lot of these children had these experiences where they were just so beaten they broke that even though they were already broken they just completely broke yeah and speaking of Anne later in life honoree said it was known that she was involved in black magic and she would place curses on people all the oh, time shit. so she would write down people's names, anybody that did anything wrong to her or whatever, for whatever reason. She would write down their names on these little sheets of paper. And, you know, in one of those really old ice trays where you have to, like, break the metal to, like, pop out the ice. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? She would put them in all the little sections, freeze them. And anybody who ended up in those ice cubes would either fall ill or she would do something and then they would fall ill. And then anyone who tried to help them would somehow get hurt. So there was always some kind Whoa. of, like... You start to think that maybe she did have some kind powers, of yeah. powers that were going on. Then we have Rebecca Cook Hamilton. This one was sad. She was really young and she had a cat. Mm -hmm. So one thing about Anne, she loved animals. She loved cats and dogs. She had tons of them. And was they she loved nice her. to them? She yeah. was nice to them. So Rebecca had this cat, but she was in such turmoil all the time that sometimes she, as a little girl, would lock herself in her room with her cat Mm -hmm. and throw the cat around and while she was talking about this she was crying you know and she's like I would throw the cat around then I would grab the cat and I would sob and hold it and rock yeah. her and tell her how sorry I am and she just she had no other way it to was her express way of, yeah, herself getting, and getting her anger out yeah. that's what's crazy about these children they grew up in this mm -hmm. since babies but they still inherently knew that what they were going through wasn't normal was not normal yeah. and was wrong like they weren't supposed to be beaten. They weren't supposed to be treated this way. So she felt really bad about Aww. that. She said that no one ever cared about the children's feelings. You know, if they would cry, no one ever would ever try they and never, help them. Yeah. They were never hugged. Like they never had any of that growing up. She spoke about being beaten by a cane by Elizabeth Whitaker. And she tried to like get away and she wrapped her little body around like this big pipe pole thing that was going from the floor to the ceiling. So just imagine this tiny little body wrapped around this big thing and she just kept hitting, hitting her, her with the oh cane, God. kept hitting her with the cane. 
And what was interesting for her later on in life, she was one of the only ones that was actually biologically related. Okay. She was actually the daughter of Anne's biological child. Okay. So Anne was actually her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And then we have Leanne. In an interview with Place, Leanne recalls Anne claiming that she could see their auras and that by the color of their auras, she could tell what they were feeling or thinking. All the children believed that Anne could read their minds. So okay. that was another way that she completely separated yeah, manipulative. them. Yeah. And when someone did something and no one came forward, every single child was punished. So some of them became the snitches because they didn't want to. Yeah. They didn't want everyone getting beaten. At one point, Leanne knew that what they were experiencing was very, very wrong and that something had to be done about it. And she escaped one night and ran and ran until she came upon a home with some lights on and she begged for the police. They came and, you know, she begged not to go back. And she told them, I would rather sleep in a gutter. Like, I'm not going back. It was not long after that that she was followed by Sarah, but for different reasons. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. Leanne had a different take on Bill, though. She was one of the ones that really loved Bill. He was never violent towards her. Okay. And so she saw him as her father and she adored him. She blamed Anne for everything and did feel that Bill was the victim and that she plucked him out of a successful life and like a loving family. Right. Which she kind of did. She did. Committed his wife. That's so fucked up. That's the worst. Yeah. I mean, all of this is the worst, really. (laughs) It's chaotic because it's so many people. That's what always gets you about these things so many people get involved I know and I don't understand you know Anne saying that she wanted to have a large family and all these kids and then she's like fucking abusing them like I don't understand you say you want all these kids and then you do nothing with them you show them no love you just parade them around as like your little robots here and there it's just mm. I don't know maybe with the money sometimes when people get money they change don't mother anymore yeah you know next is Sarah Moore She was very important in the takedown of this cult, and I'll get to that later. Sarah was among the oldest, and she became the saving grace for the children at the house that they dubbed up top at Kailama. She was taken at birth. Her name was changed. She was beaten regularly, starved, and drugged. Anne grew up with auburn reddish hair, and because Sarah had the same, she was the one that was able to keep her hair. But her life in the cult was extremely harsh, During an interview, Ben recalled for the first time seeing Bill beat one of them, and it was Sarah. Okay. He had trouble emotionally, like, recounting this at the time, and it was kind of hard to watch. She was beaten heavily with a metal buckle. Ouch. You know, of a belt. Uh He said that she was beaten until she was wiggling out of her clothing, and he was hearing her body being smashed against railing. Oh, my God. Or a balcony or something. And it was at that time he said it was horrendous to know that they had the power to do it. And they would to children. Yeah. At 14, she went to England in October of 1984 for her initiation. Okay. She was drugged with vast quantities of LSD. She remembers it lasting for at least a couple of weeks. But when she came out of it, you'll see. But if she didn't seem high enough, Anne would give her more. Wow. Anne would ask her really inappropriate questions like her sexual desires and stuff like that. I mean, she's 14. She's 14 and she's lived in like a commune. Right. She has no idea about sex, probably. For Sarah, Anne knew that she admired Swami Muktananda when they went to go visit him and that she would have rather lived with him. She was older. Like she saw like it's better. These people are happier. In in this place than this place. And so she kept her drugged for months. 
she wanted her to choose Anne. Like she wanted her to choose her. <laughs> so let's drug her <laughs> until she says she loves me. So Sarah disassociated. She remembers having a feeling of waking up in a car with Bill Uh-oh. and, you know, her fake father or whatever. But yeah, he, he wasn't with her during this time. Like, and so he asked her, he was like, well, how was it? You've been gone for months. Oh, wow. So and it wasn't it, him. It was then that she realized how much time had passed and she crashed from that. She had a break from reality. Truly. Sure. She had a, just a really difficult time after that. And that's when she believes her entire personality changed. She just wasn't the same person anymore. But that's also when eventually she started to stand up for herself and cause trouble. Okay. But it took her some time. So as I mentioned a few times in one way or another, the good news is they eventually were removed. The children were removed from this home. Okay. But how did that happen? Sarah. Yeah, I was about to say, did someone know they were being abused? <laughs> Sarah, who I spoke about just now, she was the catalyst. Okay. She was the last straw. For a few years before the children were saved, several people were looking into the family, mm-hmm. specifically a couple of investigative journalists, Maureen Moore and Philip de Montigny, and two detectives, Lex DeMann and Peter Spence. Detective Lex DeMann first became involved when he was called to go to Kailama or the school to check out a fire that was there. Turns out it was caused by Ronald. Oh, remember? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he remembers speaking to a city constable there and he was told that the parents are tied up in this cult. Okay. And that was the first time that he heard of the family mm. and Anne Hamilton Byrne. He was warned to not get involved because oh, she, she's so powerful. She's so powerful. Yeah, you'll get committed, dude. (laughs) Watch out. Marie Moore, one of the investigative journalists, said it took three years into investigating them and trying to ask questions before she met any of the children. She would go to their, you know, go to the locations where the children were, the children, they would would get denied. And the aunts were interviewed. And one of them, I remember, I think it might have been Patricia Webb. She was being interrogated by Marie Moore. Like, Mm -hmm. where are the children? What's up with Anne? And she kind of reminded me of Ellen. If you go watch this documentary, she looked like Ellen DeGeneres. Okay. She's like, I just love her. We're just friends. Nothing's that. It was just so weird. (laughs) It was a weird interview to watch. (laughs) But she pushed for so long to try and find the children. And later on, so I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Later on, the children actually became very close with her after they were removed from the home. She was their savior. Yeah. Some of the, well, one of them anyway. I mean, she pushed for them. She was one of the only ones that was constantly after what was going on at the, at this place. Like she knew something was wrong. Some of them ended up living, well, some of the older girls in their teens ended up living with her for a while because like that was the only safe place that they really knew outside of this. Because once they were taken from the home, many of the children were worried about their vulnerability. And because they didn't know too much about the The world world yet, they were actually worried that they were going to get sucked into another cult Just because they didn't have the same knowledge of everyone else and maybe that someone else would prey on them. Just take advantage of them for sure. So they stuck to some of the same people that they knew coming out of the house. And all of them sadly were suicidal. Of course. How could you not be? Spent time in psych units themselves. Well, they were on all these drugs too. Who knows what that does to a growing brain? Like they already show a lot of those drugs will cause a developing brain Mm. to have suicidal thoughts. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's part of that show you mentioned. Nine Strangers. Nine Strangers. Mm -hmm. Remember the son? Yes. Sorry if none of you know what we're talking about, but the son was on that medication and committed suicide. And then Philip de Montigny, who was the other journalist, 
he put together a TV program on the family. Okay. He interviewed all of those who had left the cult and he was told about how when they tried to leave, they were forcibly taken to New Haven. Oh, God. And given shock treatment. That's horrible. They brought up the brainwashing and the children. They didn't know much about the children, but that the children didn't know who their real parents were and that Mm -hmm. they never really saw them. Sometimes the kids would come to the lodge to like sing songs for everybody, but then it would just be carted away. And they always thought that that was weird. He also interviewed Rainer and asked about these allegations along with the drug use, and he denied everything. It aired in the family and was not happy. Of course not. (laughs) And approached Reginald Ansett, who owned the television station that this aired on and who happened to be a friend of Rainer's. Okay. So Philip was brought in and he was told that he needed to make a follow up to that episode because it already aired. Oh, and now you got to say you lied or something. And now you got to portray the family in good light. Mm. Philip tried to take what he had. He didn't want to do that. So he tried to take like all the information he had to important people. Yeah. To, you know, like this is what's happening to these children. Yeah, this is a problem. And it's getting swept under the rug. But Anne's reach was too far. Oh, God. And she had too many friends in high places and nothing came of it. In 1987, Bill expelled Sarah. She's the troublemaker. She was expelled for inviting someone who wasn't part of the group to the property. Okay. She's a teenager now. Like, yeah, I she think not- she like met somebody and was like, come up. and But just her rebellious behavior as well. But that was a dumb move on Bill's part. Because they could go tell everybody everything. They felt that they had them so brainwashed at some point that they could make them leave and nothing would happen. So she was thrown out. And remember, Leanne was gone. Yeah. And there was one other. The three of them went to the authorities and told them everything and what the children went through at the camp. Timing was really important because Anne was expected back within a couple of months and a couple other kids were about to go through the clearing. And after what Sarah had experienced, she's like, we've got to get them out. Save these kids. Yeah. With the support of a private investigator and others, she was instrumental in bringing the family to the attention of the police. Although you'll see the police might have. I was about to say, you don't know. They could be bought and paid for by the family. Exactly. And I believe that that was a big part of things later yeah but as a result of sarah's efforts a raid took place at kailama on august 14th 1987 and all of the children that were still there were removed good up to 100 members of the policing squad were there to rescue the children which seemed like a lot that's a lot but i don't know how big this place was it was on acres acres The children were hiding in an underground closet. Okay. And were scared because they were told that police, if they ever saw them, or the worst, kill them. probably. Yeah. So they thought that they were about to be murdered. The older children, though, they were relieved because they, you know, they grew up. They knew that this shit was bad. And, and a lot of them are like, yeah, kill me, please. Just get me out of here. You know, like it was just that the, point. It was the younger ones yes. that were just like, why are you stealing me from my home and my, my parents? Mom and dad. and yeah. yeah. And it wasn't until after this raid that finally news got out and the whole world found out about the family and these kids who looked like dumb and dumber, (laughs) little children, bleached hair, all looking the same, weird little outfits. We're all like, okay, that's not normal. Something (laughs) crazy is going down there for sure. But still, at first, the police were not taking anything seriously. So there was like a group of them that did the work, but then that's all the people who make the decisions who aren't doing anything. They were trying to play the entire thing off as like this welfare issue that it was not, it wasn't crime. Like, oh my goodness, we don't need to do anything. 
because Anne and Bill were really protected. They were heavily yeah, they protected. Were, they had yeah built their little network. Yeah. There was so much red tape. After the raid, Anne and her husband left Australia, kept out of Australia. I don't know if they were there at the time. I think they kept out of Australia and they were gone for like six years. Oh, convenient. So no charges had been filed, mm-hmm. but they were on the run regardless. That's right. what I, that's why I'm like, well, that's a guilty thing. Yeah. So they hadn't they been charged with anything, but you don't come back for six years. Like, yeah, because you're afraid. Yeah. The children remained in protective care for a long time at Alambi Children's Home in Melbourne. The children loved it there. Good. They were really they got free. Fed. They got real food. Yeah. They got to do things they never did before. They ate real food or as much as they could. One of the girls, she was recalling when they were like, oh, you can have as much as you want. <laughs> and and she was like, oh, she's like, well, my stomach's, I think, small. Like, yeah. like she had Couldn't. like this moment because yeah. she was like, I don't know how much I can have. Like mm-hmm. it was just this huge change for the children. They got to watch TV. They got to learn how to ride bikes. They had barbecues. They went to like these small little theme parks because all of the people that became involved with the children after rescuing them just wanted to spoil them, That's even good. though they weren't like in homes yet or anything. Right. But they really did because they had to figure out who they really were. Yes. The children all believed that Ann and Bill were their parents. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that anyway, it took a team of policemen and doctors to realize that something else was going on. They didn't look like siblings. Right. And you could tell that they all dealt with like really dark crap growing up because the children had a really hard time trusting anybody at first Mm -hmm. and they like clung together. So it was like the first time they could really cling to each other too because they weren't even allowed to be that close. Have friends. Yeah. And that is when the police realized, okay, these are not Bill and Ann's, but we don't know who they are, (laughs) like who they belong to. And they had to find out individually from the policemen that Ann and Bill are not your parents. Right. And we don't know who you are. And like, imagine like coming from somewhere, like say you're like 14 years old or something. And that was your entire life. That would be very. You were just like abruptly taken from a house one day and they just sit you down. They're like, we don't know where you came from. We don't know where you <laughs> came from. We don't know who you are. And sorry, you had that entire 14 years. You've been lied up. to for 14 years and completely abused for no reason. We don't know. Sorry. Oh, it's crazy. But here's a barbecue. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, they liked it. But I know. My, it's still. Gosh. Yeah be so disorienting for these poor children. I don't know how long it took to figure out who they belonged to, you know, where right. the birth certificates were changed and who gave them up. But when they did find who they thought it was, it did require DNA matches to yes. do that. Some of the children, because they came from young teenagers or, you know, being pregnant out of wedlock, which is a huge no-no back then, approaching these mothers, like when the police went, and they thought it was possibly one of the mothers the police would go, and it was very traumatic for them. Yes. Because for a lot of them, it wasn't even their decision. They yeah. felt very pressured into it. Now all of a sudden they're finding out, oh yes, well my child is still out there, and they grew up and in a fucking abused. cult. Yeah, you right? know <laughs> That and would then, be some real guilt. And especially for the fathers, too, who didn't even know they had these children. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, I didn't know she was pregnant. Oh, my child grew up in a cult. And oh, shit. Like, that's a, have a lot child. of information. Yeah. It's a lot. Anyway, so an actual investigation into the family and its criminal side didn't happen truly until almost two years later. Okay. Detective Lex ended up writing a report recommending that the family be investigated for criminal activity. And it was three months later and in October of 1989 that a task force was formed called Operation Forest. Okay. Lex Demian 
was named the senior sergeant and was given four detectives, including head detective Peter Spence, and three months to figure it out. (laughs) At first, they weren't given much. They were given one car. And all they had at the time was just the past followers testimonies people had left the group they had no idea where ann and bill were and they didn't even know who she was like they they didn't even know what is the big deal with the situation here so they had to dig a lot to figure out what led her to having this school and these children because to them it was still like this school situation but it was like so much deeper than that they knew what they were told by others but they didn't know what her purpose was and they didn't know who they were dealing with Mm. So it wasn't until March of 1990 that they were allowed to go to Kailama. Okay. And it might be Lama. I don't know. Whatever. Kailama. <laughs> we'll go with it. And search the property. At this time, this is when they also started to interview the children like in depth. Oh. At first, they didn't want them to like have to relive everything that they had just left. But now they needed to know because the children are the ones that knew the deepest, the deepest what had darkest, been going yeah. on. They were the focus of Anne's vision. Yeah, her large family. Yeah. Many of them ended up requiring additional like mental health services afterwards sure. because it did re-traumatize them. And after doing all of this, though, this was the point when more police became involved because after hearing their stories, everyone just wanted justice for them. Good. Detective Pierce wrote a report asking to allow witness statements from the past members to be used in the attempt to bring forth an arrest on Ann and Bill, but it was rejected. And he thinks that it didn't even go past his supervisor. Oh, so, so the supervisor was in it? He, Yeah, I mean, they were just worried, who's involved here? Like, right. who actually is involved here? For years, there was no justice for the children or ex-members whose lives were destroyed. There was absolutely no accountability. At some point, for those who were still working on the case, they got word that Ann and Bill were in Hawaii. Okay. Marie Moore, remember the journalist, she's like, oh, I'm going. So she flew out there and she confronted them. And you're watching her on video and she asks like a bunch of questions and stuff. And they just were like, no comment, no comment, mm-hmm. no comment. And Bill actually did get a little bit violent and like pushed her around in the cameraman a little bit. I'm like, you're just vacationing in Hawaii. Wow. Yes. While your beloved children are no longer with you. (laughs) Your 28 kids that you supposedly love. You just don't even get charged with anything. Like they raid this house and take a bunch of children and they're just years later, they're just in Hawaii. They're like, we're just traveling the world. No big deal. Yep. So even being able to like find them and talk to them at times, they were really getting frustrated. They literally had no help or funding this task group. They had nothing. That's horrible. And it really seems that the task force was formed because so many people were saying, you got to do this. You got to look into right. this. Like they gave them something mm-hmm. to shut the people up that were trying to get justice. Yeah. For, yeah. To raise a scene about this. But they and, weren't but then, funding like, them. Just <laughs> stuck them in a little room so yeah. that they were all in there and nothing was being done about it. Wow. Well, because of this, somehow documents were leaked about the lack of support, effort, and funding. One of the officers, we don't know who, we really don't, because he went to a man named Robert McClellan, who was an opposition minister for the police parliament of Victoria, and thankfully not a member of the cult. Good. Robert spoke about everything at the parliament of Victoria on May 16th, 1990, Part of his speech involved speaking about the harassment that the policemen working on the case and the journalists were receiving from Anne's followers. Oh. She used them to do her dirty work. Right. 
They slashed tires. Shots were fired into some of their homes through their windows. Wow. Their phones rang off the hook only for someone to hang up. And they received death threats. Mm. He was a voice for the police who were just begging, like, give us our freaking resources. We do, yeah. Like, we want to go back to our lives, too. Yes. And this is taking forever because we don't have what we need to look into what's actually happening here. Right. One of the death threats actually came from Ronald. Remember I said mm-hmm. I was going to bring him up later. Yeah. He was 19 at the time he did this. Okay. Because he wasn't one of Ann and Bill's children. Right. He was given the choice. Do you want to stay with your family? Like you went through this too, or would you like to go to the children's home as well? And he didn't know what to do. He ended up choosing his family. Like Because that's all he knew. That's all he knew. Even at the time, like he hated his mom. He hated her, but he stayed with his family. And because it became an even more isolated incident without the children all in one place, he just, I think he got sucked into it even more. Mm -hmm. And so he came out threatening to hurt an officer because he heard that during the raid, one of them hit his mom. Oh God. And so he stood up and he was like, if you listen to him in, in interviews, even when he was a teenager, he's just a kid, like really trying to stand up for himself, you know, right. confused, like your choice of religion is your choice. Right. And like, he's like trying to like back interview the cops on this <laughs> tape, you know? And I'm all I heard was this kid who was just trying confused to like, and well, not even confused, but like trying to be a man and be like, you can't do that to me. I know yeah. my rights, you know, type of stuff because he was brainwashed. Yeah. But Bill heard about this and was really, really, really impressed with Roland's act of protecting Loyalty. his family. <laughs> And he promised to give Roland $50,000 in his will. I mean, that's when he died. Not nothing. Yeah. I don't know if he actually ended up getting that. Probably not. A little side note, though. Roland did get over this eventually, although he did care for his mother until she died. Okay. And he changed his name to Adam after this. And he has no connection to the cult anymore whatsoever. And, and he did try to find his birth mother. Sadly, she had already died. But he connected with his aunt. And his cousins. So good. Back to it. After this incident of him threatening the cop, there became like this publicity around the fact that detectives didn't have what they needed or like the other story was just that, you know, the police are doing nothing about this. Look how many years it's been. And so they started to get more scrutiny over how long it was taking. And that got the ball rolling. Okay. All of a sudden, they got a little bit more resources, not tons. (laughs) They got some computers and some analysts to help them out because... Part of the issue is they were going through tons of paperwork, like 20 years of documentation. And at the time, they didn't think any of it was fraud. They were just trying to find stuff. Okay. Okay. So it was a lot to get through. But even though they got those resources, some of the cops were already burnt out. Like this had already been several years. Yeah. They were starting to have nightmares. They weren't coping well. You know, they just were really afflicted by what the children had gone through. Mm-hmm. And it was taking over their lives. And some of them ended up having to put in for leave from the task force to go seek their own psychiatric help. I feel like there's a lot that we don't know because this went on for years. Can you imagine only working on no. one case and for not years, feeling like you're getting anywhere? Getting anywhere. Yeah. All you have are these children who are just like desperate for something to yeah. happen in life. Like I can see how, how much pressure you. that puts on you. But the other ones in the group kept working. They still didn't have anything. Like there was no direct evidence for anything the children had told them, anything the ex-members had told them. They couldn't find anything because oh. they needed something so, yeah, to be able to bring charges. They, they can't bring charges against yeah. them. 
Finally, one day, they did find something that they could use. They got a bit of a break. And this is Peter Kibbe. So Peter Kibbe was the lawyer. Okay. The solicitor. That's what they call him over there. Mm -hmm. And remember, in the beginning, he was one of Anne's like true disciples. disciples. Yeah. (laughs) He had personal knowledge of all the dealings of the family, the houses, the birth certificate situations, the money transactions. But Peter ended up leaving the family after an argument with Anne. Okay. And Sergeant Lex's demand said that the entire time to like through their search over the years, they went by the motto like documents don't lie. Or whatever. But they found out, well, people on documents lie. Mm. (laughs) And they found Peter Kibbe's signature on something. And he'd falsified statutory declarations. So what they did is they left and they went to go to where he lived and they charged him with perjury. Okay. But because they knew that would like ruin his life, like with what he does for a living and not being part of Anne, like if he got that, then everything would be ruined. So they gave him an option to help them. To tattle. (laughs) Yeah. And he did. It did take him a couple of weeks to think about it or I don't know, maybe he was gathering all the documents that he wanted to bring forward, but he went forward with helping them. For him, it was revenge. Okay. Because he was really, really angry. He blamed Anne for pretty much everything that his life became and he wanted justice Mm -hmm. for himself. Peter was a victim of Anne as well. In many ways, she kept a lot from him. But he was handling like so much that even like in his profession, some of it, he didn't really see like everything that she was saying. Like he even didn't know at times that the child wasn't hers, like really hers, you know, like he was just doing the documentation thinking he was helping an honest person. Yeah. But his physical and mental health was also affected. He suffered from a very heavy case of OCD. Okay. And Anne knew this. And she used it against him. Anne claimed to have special powers and that Mm. she could heal him as long as he obeyed her every order. And at one point, Anne ordered a lobotomy. For him? For him. And she said that it would stop his OCD. So he had this and instead it intensified everything and he became different. Yeah. And his wife believes that he suffered from frontal lobe damage. Of course, it's a lobotomy. Like, (laughs) Like they just put an ice pick in your brain. I still can't believe that's a thing. I just can't. And that he like voluntarily was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Because Thanks, Anne. he watched other people like get help from her in some way or another. And Who he thought she was knows? divine Maybe, or whatever. You know, it's all about manifestation. If you believe that someone's going to help you and you're like sitting in these meditation things all day long. Yeah. Maybe you're actually healing yourself and you're attributing it to her doing it for right. you. And so it's like this back and forth of belief. So he probably thought you know, well, this is needed. And he's someone who's doing things for hours on end just out of OCD. And it's sad. So if that's something you're living with, if someone says, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. They'll be like, fuck yeah. Like where? Sign me up probably, especially if it's really bad. It took about three months to go through everything with Peter Kibbe. They went through every document to understand the real story behind all the lies on each page. At the end, there was a massive statement from Peter to turn in. Really, he was brave enough to stand up against her and the family, and he put himself in the direct line of fire, and he really was the only one that did that, other than Sarah. Sarah really stood up, and she was seen as the Judas to Anne. Maybe because of his lobotomy, he wasn't able to like think clearly through all the repercussions, so he was more brave to... I mean, he was brave, but he was also older now. Like he He was getting up there. And he's, and he's like, what else are you going to do to me? What are, you already what are you poked a hole in me? my brain. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm done with you. But he also 
Like he knew what they did was wrong. He knew what he did was wrong. And right. Maybe he lived with it for too long. That's why he left. And like when they came to him, mm-hmm. he's like, okay, I know. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Let me he's tell like, you. Let me tell you oh, everything. Oh, do I have a story. <laughs> <laughs> After this, they got extended time to try and find a way to charge her with something. But they were given a hard stop like at 12 months. Yeah. Because they had no evidence to prosecute them on the abuse, the dishonesty. Like they didn't have anything yet. They could go after a bit of fraud, but it still just it wasn't Wasn't there yet. Yeah. The police had to find out all the original birth certificates. Once they had that, it wouldn't require a witness to prosecute because it's the documents. Right. Like it doesn't require anybody. So they did finally charge her with something. They charged them with perjury okay, and conspiracy to defraud with all of Kibby's help. Like Good. he did a lot. Yep. Because it turns out that Anne also had aliases that she oh, signed under. Nice. So she had other stuff. <laughs> Don't piss your lawyer off, guys. <laughs> exactly. So the director of public prosecutions issued an extradition warrant. They needed to get them back to Australia. Are they still in Hawaii right they now? They knew they weren't in Australia, but they didn't know where, where they, they were. were. Yeah. <laughs> but at least it was out there now. They partnered with the UK, the FBI, and Interpol to try and track them down. An FBI agent, Hilda Kogut, or Kogut, was tasked with seeing if they were at their home in New York. So she actually rode with a postman to Anne's house because they knew that the houses were really far apart. It's actually a really perfect place for religious movements to be hidden, hidden and doing whatever they wanted to. And they knew that the post office probably knew more about everyone in the area than the people living in the area. Yeah. So she rode with him and got there and he honked the horn for the mail and nobody came out. So nothing happened that day. And then in Kent at Broom Farm, because that's one of their other houses, police started to surveillance there and try and figure out where they were. But they actually got a break because Anne, I don't know why, because she's her Judas, called <laughs> Sarah for some reason. And Sarah immediately went to the cops and Good was like, Sarah. I think she's in America. Okay. So then the FBI went back to Hurleyville in New York and they were there. And the okay. mor- they went really early in the morning and they surrounded their house. Bill answered the door and Anne was behind him. And they tried to be like really quiet and like quick and discreet about it and said, like, all right, we got to go. We got to go right now. And Anne was just really, I can't leave yet <laughs> because she didn't like how she looked. Oh, like she yeah, was just very she vain, very vain, elderly. She wore tons of wigs. How was, old is she at this point? I think at this point she's 71 or 72 okay. or 71. So they were arrested in June of 1993. They were taken in jail. Good. While awaiting extradition, their lawyers tried getting them out on bail, claiming that they were not healthy and that Anne had a bad heart. Mm. And but it wasn't granted. <laughs> Good. They knew they would run. They were there for three months, actually. And Bill was actually the one that ended up agreeing to go back to Australia earlier than the police were expecting, like, to have to deal with with the red tape and everything and getting them back because Bill's roommate was murdered. Oh. And he was scared. Uh, yeah. That he, he would like, be next. All right. I want to go back. I don't care if I <laughs> face like, charges. I get me out of here. <laughs> He's in the mail jail where, like, horrible things are happening. Yeah. In the showers. <laughs> But, you know, it ended up okay for them because when they got back on August 17th, 1993 to Australia, they went straight to court and both Anne and Bill were released on bail. So they did have to report daily. So it wasn't like just sayonara, see you later. But they get to go hang out in their nice plush mansion or whatever. They pled not guilty. Of course they did. 
while everyone was waiting for both sides to form their arguments for the actual court case, like a kind of strange thing happened. Remember Leanne? Leanne was the first one who ran away from the house that we know about, but she was also the one that loved Bill. She adored him and she was about to get married when she found out that they got extradited back to Australia. Oh, okay. And were released. She knew everything that they went through as children. She knew it was wrong, but she wanted an adult relationship with Bill, like outside of the cult. Okay. She did want that. And she asked him to walk her down the aisle. Oh, so she had a father like she found out who her real father was. And through her real mother, she found out she had a stepfather. But Bill was the one that raised her. Right. Like, not really like he was gone. But that but was that's the who she looked up that to. She knew and yeah. he never beat her like he never had that relationship with her. Like she always just saw him as her kind, loving dad. And so she knew that she was getting like a lot of questions from people like, why would you do that? And she's like, I blame Anne. <laughs> OK, yeah. but Anne was invited as well. They're both elderly. It's like once you become elderly, you start being forgiven for all the bullshit in your right. life. And you look, they look at you as not a threat anymore. It's like child fuck up child again kind yeah. of thing. And so that was it because she just remembered him as a victim. Okay. Even though she knows he did bad things to her right. siblings. So overall, once they came back and were released, it took three to four months to go to court. And of course, Ann and Bill showed up with a massive team of very expensive lawyers. Right. It was a lot to go up against, especially considering that on the prosecuting side, it wasn't like this star team that was like paid for it. Right. It's just the whoever court appointed type of people. Yeah. So they're not going to have the the resources that the defense team's going to have. Right. And the only charge left on the table at this point was for lying on documents that oh three, God, that's children, three of the children were not their own. Like that's probably that's a nothing. fine. They don't yeah. even go to jail for that. They were facing at the time five years and up to $60,000 in fines. In the end, because Anne was 72 and Bill was 71, they were charged for making a false declaration and were fined $5,000 each. And that is it. Fuck. After everything, that's it. There's no happy ending. The judge did take their age into consideration and their health, and that's all. But the reason for this, too, is there wasn't any evidence to go after anything else. They couldn't prove any abuse. They couldn't prove the drugs. Like, too much time had passed between the allegations. And there was a case in which Bill and Ann, like, felt people were going to come at them. And they did call the house at one point. And Ronald, I didn't write this down, but Ronald remembers being called and they were ordered to destroy a lot of evidence okay files so maybe other things were missing that maybe would have done something to give some more justice right but also when requires extradition from another country you have to say what you're extraditing them for and it has to be specific and when they come back you're not allowed to throw other charges on top of them oh so there's a lot of red tape <laughs> yeah between all of this so that's why they that's only so ended sad. up in, so no yeah. no victim no. got their justice nope the children received no justice and on top of it the day of that court hearing and everything that happened the children were there as adults and current cult members were walking past them and saying really nasty things to them oh. everybody just denied their abuse the entire time that's so messed up the entire time And Anne just never acknowledged any of the abuse ever. She was the messiah still to so many. That's so crazy. Age, yeah. 
of course, Anne used this win of hers. I mean, $5,000. She's a millionaire. That's like five bucks. Here you yeah. go. <laughs> well, she Pocket used it change. to preach to the followers. You know, they prevailed and God was on her side. Nothing oh, was yeah. ever really going to happen to her. And this because was just proof. She's God's son. She's right. Jesus. So they actually, because now they're back in Australia, they went back to having regular meetings mm. in Fernie Creek with their followers at the lodge. But there were some other members of the family that were tried at court and pleaded guilty of defrauding the Commonwealth, including the ants. Oh. So at least something came to them because they're the real... They're the ones that were abusing They were the physically. real abusers yes. at this time of the children. But it still makes me mad that the person who like was the she puppeteer... Was, she was the puppeteer. Never in gets every in way. trouble. That no, happens never. in so many of these cases, unfortunately. That's how this world is ran. That's yeah. how the government the is ran. The money. They never get in trouble for anything. She was just actually too small game. Right. You think about it. She was still on the level of people knowing who she was in some yes. way. Whereas most people don't know who those people are. Yeah, you don't really high. know who's you don't pulling know who the they strings. Are. You don't know who anybody is. So Diane Sutherland, Jane Byrne, and Susan Ellis were convicted. I don't know exactly of what, but their names were listed. Elizabeth Whitaker was convicted of falsely obtaining nearly $23,000 between 1983 and 1987 and charged with social security fraud. And she was put in prison. I don't know for how long. Okay. But she did do a little bit of jail time. Margot McLellan was convicted of the same. Joy Travelin, Helen Buchanan. They were all convicted of falsely obtaining money between a certain amount of time. And they were all involved with the children in one okay. way or another. So they did help to handle some illegal things for Anne. So a little tiny bit of justice was a done little bit with of the tiny aunties, justice. but still, yeah. yes, not enough. And, you know, I just realized I never mentioned anything about Rainer. So Rainer was the co-founder. He was John the Baptist. Yes. Right, John the Baptist. He just kind of disappeared in my story here. He right. actually died just before the children were rescued. Oh, okay. In the raid. So he died in 1987, right before that happened. So that's why he's not involved in all of this aftermath of everything that's going on. He got the hell out before. <laughs> I guess so. I wonder how they dealt with his death at that time. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Because it was still kind of in the height of their cult and they were supposed to be saved. Yeah. The aliens were going to come. I yeah, guess and he like, was co-founders. Maybe he needed to die first to go tell the aliens. I don't know. I, I'm sure they made up some bullshit. You know, a, we don't have that information. Like what yeah. was said? What did Anne come and say? I had a vision that he was about to die and it was for a purpose. And the aliens actually came and got him. He's not yes. there anymore. He's not dead. He was <laughs> taken up on the spaceship last night. I saw it. They told me I can communicate with him. It's okay. <laughs> so there were some other good things that came out of this too a little bit later because Anne was back in Australia. That means she could be sued. Okay. So her Take biological her daughter actually sued okay. her for her assets that remained in England. Her granddaughter, who was one of the children, Rebecca, remember, mm -hmm. she sued her. And this was really the only situation in which any of it was done based on the abuse. So she right. sued her for alleged psychiatric and psychological illnesses, malnourishment, and cruel and inhuman treatment. Mm -hmm. And she was awarded $250,000. Well, that's something. So there was something. Another former member of the family who I hadn't heard of really up until just this point, her name was Cynthia Chan, and she alleged that she had paid Anne for two different properties and they were supposed to be transferred to her. Okay. Anne never did. She gave Anne over $420,000 for these properties, and Anne's response to that was, I have no memory. Oh, okay. 
Well, that's why you got to get it in writing. Such a thing. Of course not. But Chan was awarded $250,000. So I don't okay. know if at some point Peter's like, I'm going to help anybody who comes forward. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> he might. You know, you never know. So Anne and Bill continued to live secret lives after this. Her only public appearance since 1993 was to go to Bill's funeral. Okay. He died on May 16, 2001 of kidney failure, and she arrived with bodyguards. She mm-hmm. always felt like someone was going to kill her. She just thought she was too damn important. It was really, really funny. And he ended up being buried with no gravestone because they wanted... Didn't want his grave to be desecrated? No, because she was trying to keep up with the motto of unseen, unknown, unheard. Oh, yeah. That was their motto. Yeah. She actually ended up being diagnosed with dementia in mm-hmm. 2007, and she was moved into a nursing home, Centennial Lodge in Watima, South Victoria. Okay. Remaining cult members that are either in their final years of their lives or holding together what is left of the finances that have dwindled from the sales of the different properties in the U.S., England, and Australia are trying to find like, okay, who's the next Messiah person, I guess. But it's still active. How is it still active? Like the aliens have not come down. She <laughs> did not. She like, didn't fulfill say her prophecy. when it was going to happen. Oh, she okay. said that was going to be for the children. I don't know. I don't oh. know. But hopefully children aren't part of this anymore. So we're just waiting still and they're still active today. They are based on several things that I found like in the last couple years, they are still active. I don't understand people. I mean, think about it a little bit. So this started in the 70s. And if you were like an older child, let's say you were already 18, 20 and your parents were sucked in and then you got sucked in and then you had kids. I mean, different generations can grow up and they're brainwashed and maybe it's not the same abuse that these children dealt with, but it's all the same shit. Yeah, it's just like any religion. Because even though Anne's not there, they have all her recordings so they can Mm -hmm. listen to her forever and ever And and ever. And once she passes on or whatever, then she becomes even more powerful in a way. She does. Like for those things. And what we know about cults, and I, I want to get into this at some point on the podcast, is how cults are, are related to each other. Like yes. How cults spur from other cults. Like mm-hmm. cults start because one person was in another cult sometimes and, and it's like, all connected in some way or another. So it makes sense that something can continue. And it's not like a lot of of her basic preaching or the basic things that she said was bad, but it was all about the control. And really without her there, yeah, who knows what the actual structure of anything is anymore? Who knows? Who knows? But right. it's very possible that her reach will last forever. Just like True. some of these gurus and stuff. We don't know until something else comes about and another cult starts. Right. There'll be another cult started from her teachings in another 10 years. And and maybe in 100 years, she's not even seen as the crazy lady who abused children. She might be seen as something else. She's a saint. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so after leaving the cult, back to Sarah, she went on to study medicine and okay. she actually became a doctor. Good for her. She learned about her adoption and eventually met her biological mother. As a student doctor, she worked in Southeast Asia with refugees and the poor. And in 1995, she published a book called The Family, Unseen, Unknown, and Unheard. But life was still really, really hard for her. She attempted suicide in 2008, and she spent the rest of her short life in a wheelchair after that. But she still appeared in films and documentaries discussing her experience. There was a book and documentary by Chris Johnston and Rosie Jones 
they were two different people that realized that they were working on trying to release something about the family and just decided to join forces. Rosie was a filmmaker and he was a journalist. And they got together a lot of people, a lot of the children, some of the policemen, ex-members and other people to be part of this. So they got a lot of information. And sadly, during this time, Sarah did pass away. She was 46 years old. Oh, that's young. She did have family and friends that dearly loved her. She was intelligent. She was compassionate. But she suffered. She suffered from her mental health problems. She accomplished so much, though, you know, but she still suffered. And... Her funeral was Buddhist themed and the other cult children did show up to speak on her behalf and her death. You know, for them, it's a reminder that even though this happened in the 70s and the 80s, not only are there scars, but you have to live with it for the rest of your life. Right. And for Sarah, she tried. Like, I remember watching her. She was able to go back to Anne later in life with another filmmaker to ask questions. She wanted to confront Anne. Like, like why her, did you do that? In her super elderly age. And they denied everything. Wow. And she had this other person there with her, some guy that became like her side person, Michael. And they're like telling Sarah that she made it up. And they wow. all made it up. Gaslighting. And you got finest. tons of money for this and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, we didn't get any money. What are you talking about? But she just... She denied them everything. And as mentioned before, you know, with Peter, with Matthew Kibbe, I just connected the two things there. Kibbe, mm-hmm. Peter Kibbe. That means Peter lost Matthew as well. Matthew was the one that committed suicide. Oh, okay. So a lot happened to Peter Kibbe, the lawyer. Poor guy. <laughs> so Sarah wasn't the only one who dealt with depression. They all did. Detective Lex DeMann, upon Sarah's death, he said, Unjustly, she dies while the cult leader continues to live. It's always how it works. So Rosie and Chris, they're the ones writing the book and doing this documentary. They were actually granted access to visit Anne at her nursing home. Okay. And she was in a tiny little room. And they said, quote, this once powerful, dangerous woman has been reduced to a skeletal shell, snapping in and out of sleep, talking in riddles, cuddling a plastic doll, and drinking through a straw surrounded by photographs of the children she said were her own. At this point, she probably believes they were her own because she's in a state of dementia. That's true. We don't know what's going on at this point in her right. head. Anne Hamilton Byrne died on June 13th, 2019. She oh, was wow. 98 years old. That wasn't that long ago. Damn. Yeah. Why do the crazies get to live the longest? <laughs> I know. But her prophecy was incorrect. She didn't manage to cheat death. Oh, no. 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 She She died. I mean, 98, though. They always do. That is a long time. You know, they always die because it's not true. They're not who they say they are. (laughs) And then that's where I don't get why people still follow them. Because they're always like, I'm this and I will never die. maybe they have a reason of what happens to the people who are in charge. Like, if my body dies, that's not real. Yeah. Or like maybe there's this whole thing. Or maybe when someone dies, there's like a sermon that comes out that explains something. Oh, yeah. That, they do that. that, that they kind hold of on to for 30 years or something. Or usually somebody death. else comes and takes power. Like if you remember the Jeffries cult, that's what happened when he died. His son came up and was like, oh, I had a vision. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, and then he came in and did even that's worse. That's why they last forever. I know. Yeah. She died with an estate estimated at $10 million at that time. She never showed any remorse whatsoever denied it right and Lex man he said so this is the sergeant the detective he was very involved you know right said he did not shed one tear upon hearing about her death he said today for me brings an end to a life of one of victoria's most evil people agreed 
Fran Parker, the ex-member of the family, spoke with another ex-member who was a psychiatrist. This was Howard Whitaker. Oh. And he left. Very interesting that her two main guys left. Peter Kibbe, Howard Whitaker. They were the two main guys in the beginning that helped her facilitate all of this. And they left. And he left really early on. Howard left in 1970. Okay. So this was before she started collecting so many children, too. So he wasn't even aware of all of that. Like she was. It was already too fucked up for him. (laughs) (laughs) And then it just got even crazier. Yeah. But anyway, Fran asked him, and this is after they're out of the cult. She goes, what do you think Anne is, medically speaking? Okay. And his answer was, well, she's a psychopath. Absolutely. (laughs) That's just it. (laughs) Like, she's a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to end now, though, with an excerpt from Ben Shinton, one of the children, before I mentioned, like, he wrote this blog, and this is what he says. Anne will now be standing ready to be judged by the real Jesus Christ. And her knee will now bow and her tongue will confess that he is the Lord and not her. (laughs) She was a pawn used by the devil to delude all those who rejected Jesus Christ's Lord worship over death and our lives, his creation. It's hard to feel grief or sadness at her passing from this temporal world because of the broken families, the suicides, drug addictions and overdoses, the financial crippling of everyone who gave to her and came in contact with her. It was like a black hole that people gravitated to and had the life sucked out of them. So much pain of those that suffered at the hands of the implementation of her ideology that gave her a good life but hurt most people around her is plain for all to see. The greatest tragedy is those that believe that she taught a path to enlightenment and understood that the deprivations that they experienced in life was payment of the karma they had built up and the lessons they had to learn to ensure when they die, they would reach the spiritual enlightenment and break free of the cycle and death was a farce, the perfect setup for being abused and thinking your perpetrator for it. Mm. Most surviving children today, they do have partners and children, and they're proud to be parents, to be the parents that they never had. Right. There's a good ending, but that's this cult, and it lives on. What a fucked up story (laughs) for our first cult. I mean, I've never heard any of this. No, me either. When I first heard of the family, like I saw something, and for a few weeks, it stewed in my mind. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But in my head, it was Canada. Yeah, I don't know and what I I don't know why thought. I thought it was Canada. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's Australia. Well, this is good reason for me not to go to yoga. <laughs> <laughs> You're just coming up with excuses like, not to I can't exercise. go to yoga because then I'll end up in a cult. <laughs> I mean, yoga is a cult. It is in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's a whole there's a whole podcast about Bikram yoga and how culty that was, too. Mm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. At some point, we might cover that on this podcast because it's a really interesting story, too. So. I feel like I have to do yoga. I mean, it's good for you actually to stretch and everything. I mean, just don't don't get in the cult. Don't go hang out with people no, after I'm, class. Like I don't work out with other people. I don't want to be next to. <laughs> last time I did yoga, there was like some dude next to me, like dripping buckets of sweat and making grunting noises. It was oh, not gross. a good experience no. for me. Yeah, I do enjoy yoga at yeah. my house. I stre- I do a few of the stretches when like my shoulders and my hips hurt. Well, yeah, that's typically when I do it. Um, I do know people who do it regularly, and it's like. They don't know how to live without it. Yeah, it, it's you know, great. But, but I feel like for whatever reason, I guess it's because of the spiritual enlightenment. Like a lot of people take yoga and then it turns into this weird culty thing. I mean, I, I feel like it. there's multiple cults that started with like people just yoga. hanging out doing yoga. <laughs> they get high yoga and they have goats. Yeah, you get they your drink at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, I'm all about drugs and expanding your mind. But like 
you can't do LSD at that level without like losing. You're going to yeah. fry your, you literally will fry your brain if you're and, doing that much. And they were doing it not even by choice. You know, the poor it wasn't children. Even by choice and it wasn't regulated yet. It yeah. Was, who knows what they were getting. It was getting. medically legal and they were taking it at a hospital. Who mm-hmm. knows? Who knows? Yeah. But well, crazy. That was a crazy story for sure. Yeah. I love I mean, hearing crazy stories. I hope everyone listening did too. I'm sure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first cult story. Every single one of them after this will come at some point. Yes, we will get into more cults for sure. Because there are tons of them that are connected and start from another one and go to Uh, another one. And I wanted to sit and do the tangled web and figure it all out. But that might have to wait until we get to do this full time. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're still hoping for that day. And we're, we're getting closer every episode to living that dream. We want to do that. That would be amazing. And by the way, Patreon is fully up now. Yes. If you want to go take a look, we finally got to do that overnight that we talked about. We did. We, we put together we put our put together everything. Everything's there. If you want to become one of our followers there, a member, there are different levels and what you get for those levels. And we'd appreciate you at least taking a look at it. It was fun for us to put together. It was. It was actually yeah. a really fun project. <laughs> so thank you for listening. If yes. you want to go check us out on socials, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. I'm going backwards this time. What's I know. happening? TikTok. <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> and then also, please, as you continue to listen on your favorite platform, please rate us and leave comments so that we get more visibility and we can reach more people to join the Lab Rat Clan. Yeah. Thank you. Please send in your stories. We really hope you enjoyed our first lab reports. Yes. We really need more to come in. We're going to be doing another one soon and maybe it'll be yours. And we love reading your stories too. Yep. So email us lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to mail P.O. Box 251 Eastlake, Colorado 80614. Don't join a cult. Don't do it. Just do yoga in your home. That person doesn't really love you. (laughs) (laughs) If they say that they're the next coming of Jesus, they're not. They say they they can heal you. They can't. Get a second opinion. No, just stay within yourself. If you have questions, like the meditating and the yoga and everything, that's that's, cool. That's for you to connect with your own source, not not for for someone else here to be like, I'm the Messiah. Never trust a woman who owns tons of wigs. That's what I've learned from all the cults. (laughs) Wigs. Yeah. Wigs equals cults. (laughs) Anyways, stay lucid and don't join a cult. Please don't join a cult, but join our cult. All right. Bye. Bye.